Welcome, everybody, to the seventh episode in our series on Vietnam, Dien Bien Phu. It's the story of this series, but what was originally one episode has now become two. This works out okay, though, because I can cover the most important battle of the war, what would correspond to Tet in the next one, without giving it short shrift, and leave myself enough time at least to get to 1960 by the end of the summer and my matriculation in Ann Arbor. Some cool show news! We're registered for the People's Choice Podcast Awards, which means I filled out a form at podcastawards.com. For that process to get any further, you folks need to head to podcastawards.com and nominate Safe for Democracy. We're always looking for ways to get this show in front of a few more earballs, and this would be an excellent way to do that, even if SFD doesn't end up winning anything. So along with all the rating, reviewing, subscribing, tweeting, and sharing I know you've already been doing, add going to podcastawards.com and nominating SFD in the news and politics category because they don't have history to that list. Okay, we're talking about Cogni, Devar, Jap, and Ho, Bijard and Langley, the Foreign Legion, the Paratroops, the last worst battle for the Highlands, and the far-off misty valley of Dien Bien Phu. I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. ¿Para qué sirve entonces la civilización? ¿Para qué sirve la conciencia del hombre? ¿Para qué sirven las Naciones Unidas? But these differences were all forgotten in one unshakable unity of determination to find a way to end war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. Across the world, we're hunting down the killers and we're showing them the definition of American justice. There is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. We have an obligation to be of help where we can to freedom fighters and lovers of freedom and democracy from Afghanistan to Nicaragua. The United States has no intention of determining the precise form of Iraq's new government. That choice belongs to the Iraqi people. Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. So like most shows, I want to kick this one off with a bit of catch-up, a bit of summary to fix us in the right year, which is 1953, and with the right time, which is summer turning into fall, and to remind us where we're at. This time, though, I'm going to do that by quoting pretty extensively from a cut-down survey of the war written by General Vo Nguyen Giap, taken from the beginning of his book on Dien Bien Phu. I've got bits and pieces from Giap's book throughout the episode, as do the Western writers I'm using in their books. And I want to lead off with Jab for a few reasons. This will give you an idea of how the Viet Minh saw the war, at least in retrospect, since the book came out in the mid-60s. It'll give you an idea of the doctrinaire communist style, which, while there are plenty of diaries and memoirs from Viet Minh soldiers in Vietnamese, dominates the English-translated record of the Viet struggle for independence. That is, they're the ones I can get to. And I want you to get an idea of how Jap, and by extension the other prominent members of the Viet Minh, who've got published English books, are better propagandists than historians. Those last two points are important. 
Part of the reason we hear so much about the French from the French versus the Vietnamese from the Vietnamese is that there are more resources I can get to that come from that perspective, that is the French one. But another big component is that the communist writers, for plenty of good reasons, and maybe some not so good, aren't totally reliable. And much worse than that, for my purposes, they're totally dry, totally uninteresting, compared to the gripping writing that, for example, Bernard Fall lays down on every page, despite that he was pretty well against the war. If that sounds like an unfair characterization of the writing style exhibited by the communist Vietnamese, well, we're going to get into it. Listen to this. Chapter 1. The Military Situation in Summer 1953. Sorry, this is a quote. Quote, In summer 1953, our people's war of national salvation entered its eighth year. Those eight years were years of extremely hard and heroic struggle, in which our army and people fought against the French imperialists' army of aggression, which enjoyed the assistance of the U.S. interventionists and, in the beginning, an overwhelming superiority in arms and equipment. Nevertheless, through eight years of protracted resistance, the strength of our army and people was not annihilated as the enemy had hoped for. On the contrary, it grew as the fight developed and brought more and more victories. The balance of force was gradually tipped in our favor. On the enemy side, they were cornered little by little into a passive state. As the war went on, they encountered new difficulties and met with failure upon failure. It is public knowledge that hardly a month had passed since the birth of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, that is in the summer of 1945, when the French colonialists, with the help of British imperialism, committed acts of provocation in Saigon in an attempt to reconquer our country. Meanwhile, they also hatched the scheme to reconquer Cambodia and Laos. They sent in an armored division and applied their lightning war strategy with the belief that they would succeed in pacifying Nambo, that is Cochin China, southern Vietnam, within 10 weeks and using it as a springboard to attack the northern part of the country. But this was a miscalculation. Our people in Nambo, remember that's Cochin China, southern Vietnam, stood up and fought. What they had in their hands were only primitive weapons, yet they were unyielding in the face of the enemy. Guerrilla warfare soon developed over the whole of the Mekong Delta. Our party, on the one hand, and he means the Communist Party, led the struggle of the Nambo people, the southern people, and called on the whole nation to support them, and on the other hand exploited the contradictions existing within the enemy's camp by coming to a compromise with France with the signing of the March 6, 1946 Preliminary Agreement, which brought about the withdrawal of 200,000 Chiang Kai-shek's men from our country by adopting the policy of, quote, making peace in order to advance, unquote, and by working against time to consolidate the people's power and the revolutionary forces and to prepare ourselves against the enemy's new aggressive plots, unquote. Then, despite painting the whole peace agreement, the 1946 preliminary agreement from March of that year, as a ploy, Jap goes on to talk about it, after that section we just read, as if it were not a ploy because it wasn't, as if they had bargained in good faith, which they did, complaining with legitimate grievance that the French, rather than abiding by the terms of the 1946 preliminary agreement, which they did not, immediately began provocations that would result in the full opening of hostilities in November 1946. This is, I don't know if you recall, but the high commissioner started doing stuff on his own, any sabotage talks that were going on in Paris in the summer that year. Go back and listen to the episode if you need it. So Jap's pretty on top of the party line in the book. And this feels like an awkward slip between the party line and real history. Either the Viet Minh bargained, that is, ho bargained, for the 1946 preliminary agreement in good faith, which looks good, or it was a clever ploy, which also looks good in retrospect, but they could not have done both. 
They can't be trying to trick the French and then also bargaining with them in good faith. This is one of those problems with the book. Anyway, so Jap details the outbreak of war, the Battle of Hanoi, Operation Leah, which tried to capture the Viet Minh leadership and their northern stronghold above the Red River Delta. Here's how that operation sounds in Jap's own words. Quote, In the winter of 1947, the enemy threw over 10,000 seasoned men in a great offensive against the Viet Bac with the purpose of smashing our organs of direction and regular forces, that is, their headquarters and their troops, so that they could secure decisive victory and speed up the formation of a puppet government for the whole country. Our people and armed forces in the Viet Bac fought back gallantly and scored a major victory. The enemy's lightning war strategy once again met with a fiasco. The Viet Bac victory thus engendered a stalemate. The war entered a new stage, unquote. Jap goes on to describe that the French then sought to take and pacify different territories while the Viet Minh focused on guerrilla war. Propaganda work, infiltrations, etc., which is exactly what went on, and for the most part kept them in the winning position the whole war long. Then we move on to 1950, and we get a taste of what is really pretty unchill about communist histories. Listen to this. Quote, the 1950 winter marked a great change in the war situation. Our army had grown to a considerable extent. After the resounding victory of the frontier campaign, we started many other major campaigns, such as the Midlands campaign, the Highway 18 campaign, the 1951 Hanam Nin campaign, the Hoa Bin campaign, which we talked about on this show, in the winter of 1951 and the spring of 1952, and the Northwest campaign in the winter of 1952. We talked about that too. It was really fall more than winter, but you know, whatever. A pattern of counteroffensive on a local plane could already be seen. Unquote. Now, none of that is wrong, but try to think about what I don't like about it. In another section later on, he goes back over the same period. Quote, think about this. General Delatre de Tassini, one of the best French generals, was sent to Indochina. It is common knowledge that Delatre had done his best to broaden the puppet army, concentrate military forces, build up many defense lines, and launch an offensive against Hoa Binh with the aim of regaining the initiative. But in the end, he too was defeated. General Salon, Delatre's successor, was also another powerless witness to bitter defeats of the Expeditionary Corps, etc., 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 unquote. So, what Jap leaves out there was the premature move to the third stage of Revolutionary War shortly after General Delatre de Decini arrived in the country, and the three incredibly costly attacks on the Delta when General Delatre was in country during 1951. It was an incredibly important campaign season, and essential to understanding a regal history of the war. If Jap had succeeded, he would have ended the conflict right then. Since he failed, it kept going for four more years. It's essential, but there is no mention whatsoever. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk about this more at the end of this, but I'm, I just want you to look at the stuff that makes me not happy to feature huge portions of Jap's book in this episode, as opposed to uh, Bernard Fall. Jap talks briefly about the intervening years, which, if we remember, were occupied largely with the Northwest Offensive, when Jap's troops swept to the Laotian border, blowing through the thin line of French forts along the Black River, and then moving into Laos proper. Now, when they did that, they left behind two airheads, two airland bases, two isolated French fortresses supplied by air known as Nasan and Lai Chao. That is, they were at the towns known as Nasan and Lai Chao, which Jap attacked, that is, he attacked Nasan, he didn't attack Lai Chao, and did not take and the concurrent massive infiltrations of both river deltas and the central highlands in Anna. Quote, While our regular forces were winning victory upon victory on the main fronts, guerrilla warfare developed powerfully everywhere in Bakbo, behind the enemy's line. Bakbo is the north, it's Tonkin. Behind the enemy line. 
In the Hoa Bin campaign in particular, our regular units drove deep into the enemy's rear in the Red River Delta, fought in coordination with our local armed and paramilitary forces, blotted out a series of enemy strongholds, widened the guerrilla bases and guerrilla zones, and liberated millions of people. The occupied areas were considerably reduced, and covered only about one-third of the territories adjacent to the main highways and urban centers." Unquote. All of which is true. The Viet Minh had reduced the occupied territories, that is, the places that the French were occupying, to only about a third of what the French represented on their maps, and that third was only directly adjacent to forts, highways, and towns. Anyway, then Jap gets to 1953, which is, remember, the year that we're in. Quote, The situation of the two sides in summer 1953 can be summarized as follows. On our side, through eight years of fighting and training, our people's armed forces, the core of the resistance, had grown up from their infancy to full maturity. The People's Army then comprised many regular divisions and regiments besides a great number of local regiments and battalions. Militia and guerrilla forces also developed quickly. The coming into being and speedy growth of these three forces was the result of our party's correct policy of mobilizing and arming the whole people and waging a people's war. It was also the result of the correct tactics for a protracted revolutionary war. To wage guerrilla warfare, to advance from guerrilla warfare to regular warfare, to closely combine these two forms of war, and to develop from guerrilla to mobile and siege warfare. Exciting, riveting stuff, right? Anyway, on the enemy's side, while in summer 1953 our people's resistance was full of bright prospects, the aggressors were facing great difficulties. The enemy then had about 450,000 men for the whole of Indochina, comprising 120,000 Europeans, Africans, and legionaries. The rest were puppet troops. Although those effectives showed a big increase in comparison with the enemy forces at the beginning of the war, the balance of forces between the two sides already tipped visibly in our favor." Unquote. Jap points out, as the French pointed out, and as Falls pointed out, and everybody else has pointed out, and I pointed out, that French manpower problems had plagued them throughout the whole war. He doesn't mention, although he should have, that those puppet troops, that is the troops raised from Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, were close to worthless to the French, except when they were directly integrated into French units, which became more and more the case towards the war's end. Then Jap says something pretty interesting here. Quote, the ultimate goal of the French colonialists was to grab our land. Faced with our opposition, they had to scatter their forces and set up thousands of military posts, big and small, to protect what they had seized. Thus, the war of aggression undertaken by the French Expeditionary Corps was a process of the constant scattering of that army. And the more it was scattered, the better the conditions we had to destroy it, part by part." Unquote. Not only was Jap's strategy to mirror Mao up in China and follow the age-old maxim, attack where the enemy is weakest, but a conscious effort to make the French feel insecure everywhere because the unerring French reaction to that feeling was to spread out their forces even thinner, rather than concentrating for large attacks. Or, as we've discussed many times on these shows, concentrating their forces in the deltas where the rice is. Now, re returning to what I was talking about, which is the quality of communist writing, I think Jap had really good reasons at the time that he published this book, which was the mid-1960s, to put out a propagandistic tract on the Viet Minh victory at Dien Bien Phu. And it's not even that propagandistic. He totally elides the Day River battles in 1951 when he tried to crack the Delatra line, but otherwise he's pretty straight up. And he even refers to the morale problems that they would have at Dien Bien Phu, if a little elliptically. The U.S. at the time of publication had been conducting its own colonial project in Vietnam for more than a decade, and 
by the way, publishing books that lied a whole lot more than this one did. Johnson at the time was getting ready to start sending hundreds of thousands of troops over. Jap needed to reinforce the North's desire to fight. To that point, it had mostly been the NLF, the so-called Viet Cong, the National Liberation Front down in the South, harassing the puppet government in Saigon. But now the DRVN, the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, would have to start putting more and more regular troops in uniform and in the field again. Only a decade after the end of the last long, disastrous war against a vastly more powerful Western enemy. It was an excellent moment to paint as rosy a picture of the last victory as possible, because an even more arduous struggle was ahead. I don't begrudge Jeb any of that. I just don't think it makes for great reading. Aircraft of the French and Vietnam forces based in Indochina are prepared for a raid on Viet Minh terrorists. Recently, the enemy, well-organized and equipped, have been holding their own against ground troops in many areas, so from now on, round-the-clock bombing is the order for the Air Force. From their airfield somewhere in the Hanoi region, the planes make for a terrorist hideout using napalm bombs. The grim, violent struggle in Indochina still goes on. So just to polish up Jap's doctrinaire summary there and make sure we're actually really firmly couched in the summer and fall of 1953. So what we had in the fall of 1953 is a French Union force that was spread out between Vietnam, Laos, and since Jap's attacks into the Laotian interior, even the northern border of Cambodia, which Jap's troops were approaching. While the French still possessed a few mobile groups, hard-hitting agglomerations of their very best soldiers, most of their forces were tied down in watchtowers, forts, garrisons, checkpoints, and every other manner of fixed position all over the country. None of those fixed positions had enough men to project power for more than a few meters into the jungle around them, and almost none of them could, when the Viet Minh gathered a whole region's forces to attack at one point, actually defend themselves. All they did was serve to tie down French manpower. The French army was bleeding from a thousand wounds, flailing feebly in all directions, and it had no idea of where to go or what to attack to even think about changing the situation. Contrary to the Viet Minh, who from the very beginning of the war had been focused on breaking the French will to fight, which they understood to be the real source of the victory, rather than, for example, conquering Hanoi or destroying the bulk of French forces, the French didn't have and never had a war-winning strategy. They never knew how to break the Viet Minh will, they never knew how to trap its soldiers. Everything had been cooked up ad hoc as solutions to intermediate problems. For example, the Red River Delta was insecure, so they built the Delatra Line. Jap was heading towards Laos, so they struck into his backfield with Operation Lorraine. Viet Minh penetration of the highlands and the southern delta were getting worse, so you get the mobile groups to race around encircling village after village. Those might be good solutions to immediate problems, and some of them were and most of them were not, but none of them led in any perceptible way towards the end of the war, in part because the French never had a good idea of how to end the war. This is an issue to which modern Western military bureaucracies and apparati seem particularly prone. The US and Vietnam likewise never had a plan for victory. The closest they ever got was the body count, which was not a goal, but a measurement, and a pretty poor one at that. In Iraq, no plan for victory, after the first false victory over Saddam's armed forces. In Afghanistan, no plan for victory. 
The example par excellence is the war on terror. It's pretty clear what would cut down on worldwide terrorism, if you leave out the white nationalist terrorism that's by far the greatest threat to the United States public. Stop screwing around in the Middle East, and instead work towards prosperity and stability in the region on its own terms versus those dictated to it by the United States. Now, instead of doing that, which would clearly lead to the end of the war on terror, what we do instead is prosecute dozens of little wars from Yemen to Syria to virtually all of the countries in North and Central Africa, and we're eyeballing Lebanon at the moment. We prop up this regime here, put special forces on the ground there, 6,000 of which are active in North Africa right now, provide weapons and cash to groups in a third place. Some of those might be good solutions to intermediate problems, but none of them do anything to win the war on terror. The result being that the war goes on and on and on. In any case, as we get into the period at hand, Fall writes that, and he's right, quote, it became increasingly clear that France had entirely lost sight of any clearly definable war aims, unquote. During the spring and summer of 1953, French politicians were looking for a way out of the war, a way to achieve a coup null, a draw. The Americans bankrolling their war, if we remember back to last show, weren't having that defeatism. Eisenhower was concluding his own peace with the communists in Korea at the time, that is, uh, before July 1953, and allowing the French to do the same would have looked bad domestically. So the French were told that to get the aid they needed to survive one more day in Indochina, they would have to keep fighting, that they would have to inject new blood into the command structure in Saigon, and that they would have to come up with a plan for victory. The French answer to all three demands was to appoint General Henri Navarre, the air-conditioned general, the ex-intelligence man, the cat lover, the austere, impersonal, frigid, solitary commander who would run the rest of the war for Paris. Navarre received orders over the summer from his metropolitan masters that whatever the Americans thought, his prime objective was to keep the French troops intact and work towards that coup null, that draw game. For the folks in D.C., Henri Navarre was to do his best to come up with some sort of path to victory just to show those guys in D.C., even if it were mostly or just a sham. That plan, the plan that Navarre came up with, was ably described by General Jap. Quote, the operational plan envisaged two stages. A, in autumn-winter 1953 and spring 1954, to keep the strategic defensive in the north, carry out a strategic offensive in the south, at the same time develop the puppet army, that is the army of the Saigon regime, muster troops, and build up a big mobile force. All of which is true. That was Navarre's plan. B, if the plan were working well, in autumn-winter 1954, that is the year after, he would transfer to North Vietnam his mobile forces greatly increased and highly heartened, then shift to a strategic offensive on the front of the North and win great military successes, thus forcing us to negotiate in conditions favorable to them. And if we did not accept his conditions, he would destroy our regular forces, unquote. Which, again, is exactly what the French were planning on doing. And Jap has the benefit of writing this from hindsight when, you know, the French had already published books about the war. But what's important to note is that Jap and the leadership of the DRVN knew that this was Navarre's plan pretty much as soon as Navarre came up with it because the French were terrible at operational security. They were always telling their Vietnamese mistresses and, and Viet Minh spies. They, the Viet Minh knew exactly what the French were doing almost as soon as they had thought of doing it. So that was Navarre's plan. Lay low in the north, invest massive resources in the south to clear out Viet Minh operatives and troops. And then when that was done, move north and do the same thing in Tonkin. Which is a great plan. 
a great plan. If you forget that the French had been trying to clear out and pacify different regions of the country with no success for nearly eight years by that point. Um, so other than that, a great plan. So there was this other metric the French could have used to evaluate their performance so far and their chances of eventual victory that I'm going to bring up right now, which was the quantity of aid that each of these opponents, that each side of the war was receiving from their respective partners abroad. The Viet Minh were getting 250 tons a month from the Chinese by mid-1952, 450 a month by the end of that year. As soon as 1953 opened, the Chinese doubled that amount to 900 tons a month in ammunition, vehicles, and weapons, and they continued to increase that, but not doubling it anymore, just, you know, kicking it up a little bit towards the end of 1953 and into 1954. So that's a sizable sum, 900 tons a month, 30 tons a day, sure. The French, though, at that point, were getting more than 8,000 tons a month from the United States, as well as the vast majority of their war costs. By the end of 1954, 90% of their war costs. The Viet Minh, for the most part, paid the Chinese for what they received. The interesting thing to draw on here with that metric, or the question to ask, is that if U.S. aid to France was nearly 20 times the volume of the Chinese aid to the Viet Minh at the end of 1952, and still 10 times more in 1953, what was keeping the French from winning and Ho from losing? And moreover, what were the French doing to change their situation and win the war in a context where the Viet Minh, who had no problem holding out with no aid, were now receiving proportionally more every month? That is... If you couldn't win the war when the Viet Minh were on their own, what makes you think you're going to be able to win the war now that they're getting 900 tons a month from the Chinese? That's a question to ask yourself if you're a military commander running a war in Indochina, and if you can't come up with a good answer to that question, it's the time to end the war. Now, Navarre, of course, didn't have answers to any of those questions, and it's questionable whether the Navarre plan was ever a serious plan for victory or just a stopgap to keep the Americans off his back. But in the context of this podcast, at least, we don't know. Those papers may exist in a library in Paris somewhere, but they are not in my hands. Anyway, there were a couple of factors that ended up giving Navarre's eventual plan its final shape. While the French commander-in-chief would have liked to do nothing or nearly nothing in the north except work on further fortifying the Red River Delta, Jap had been making periodic stabs into Laos since the northwestern offensive. We actually heard last show that he'd gotten almost all the way to Luang Prabang, which is the royal capital, in the spring of 1953 before the monsoon. The French reinforced a couple of fortresses there in Jap because he never wanted to occupy Laos in the first place. He backed off. And each stab, especially when they got close to that royal capital, Luang Prabang, spooked the French into action. In autumn of 1953, Jap's forces and their Laotian Pathet Lao allies again appeared particularly menacing, arriving in the environs of Luang Prabang and Navarre began looking for a way to respond to that aggression. Not only that, but France signed a treaty of association with Laos in mid-October 1953, committing themselves, if not in writing, at the very least in spirit, to the defense of the non-communist regime in that country. As Fall says, quote, The commitment was clearly implied. Indeed, there was no other reason for Laos to sign the treaty, unquote meaning that France signs it because it needs Laos to be part of its sort of fictitious organization of associated states so it can slot the Saigon regime into that same thing and get some international recognition. Laos doesn't necessarily want any of that, but they do need French help to hold off the path of Laos. That's why they signed the treaty. So what that means is that Navarre had even more incentive and even more pressure from above to come to Laos's defense, to do something about these Viet Minh invasions across the border. 
Like we mentioned last show too, one of the two airheads that lay behind Jap's lines, Na San, had been evacuated over the summer with no losses, making the whole airland base model seem like a viable option for a future plan. The renewed interest in doing something in the north to ward Jap away from Laos didn't make Navarre call off any of the plans he'd laid for the 1953-54 campaign season. Operation Moeta, or Seagull, meant to clear out Viet Minh troops and operatives in northern Annam as a precursor to operations further south, went forward on October 15th despite Jap invading Laos. Moet, despite the typical massive preparations for a pincer movement, it looked like Sainture that we talked about two shows ago, it looked like Leah that we talked about two shows ago, it looked like a number of operations we talked about the French using. Despite the massive typical preparations, despite the pincer movement, despite good French intelligence, despite the involvement of the elite mobile groups, despite the lightning strike aspect of the operation, managed to achieve none of its objectives, managing to kill or capture only those few Viet Minh who had been ordered to fight a holding action while the rest of the forces in the area melted away into the jungle as they had been for the last eight years of the war. Operation Seagull's failure to achieve results, combined with the Viet Minh's nearly unopposed advance into Laos, added to the apparent success of the Nasan air land-based model, led Navarre to a decision which would lead directly to the end of the war and French defeat. Navarre made plans to move on Dien Bien Phu. Navarre wanted to use the same sort of plan as Operation Lorraine, which, if you remember, had been designed to cut through Viet Minh territory to seize supply depots and weapons stores in order to head off another earlier attack into Laos, but with a different logistical apparatus. The problem they figured with Lorraine and all of those other operations was the defense of the roads and rivers that led to the points in question, and the lines of supply that forces had to leave in their wake. If we remember back to the Battle of Hoa Binh, um, I think one or two episodes ago, I'm not exactly sure, but if we remember back to the Battle of Hoa Binh, the French ended up losing most of their troops on the way in, on the river and on the road, trying to resupply Hoa Binh, not through the actual siege of Hoa Binh itself. So, drawing on the Nasan model, that is the airland base model, the airhead model, Navarre would instead occupy a position in Jap's rear, an anchor from which he could attack Jap's backfield, but he would do it directly. Rather than going overland to reach whatever this point would be, they'd fly everything in, creating a Nasan out of the valley of, it ended up being, Dien Bien Phu. They drop in the paratroopers, the paratroopers build a base, and then from that base they can attack in all directions to break up Jap's attacks into Laos. That's the idea, anyway. What Navarre was betting on was that Jap, despite having the Russian Molotova trucks that French intelligence had told him about, and that the army had found during Operation Lorraine, which I think we mentioned a couple shows ago, that even with those trucks, Jap just would not logistically be able to support a long-term Nasan-type battle as far into the interior as Dien Bien Phu, which is 500 miles from Jap's base areas, almost all the way through mountains, making the French forces there a permanent thorn in his side and keeping Jap from moving fully into Laos. Again, this is the idea. Considering that Jap never wanted or needed to conquer Laos, considering that every move he made was geared towards spreading the French thin so as to make them easier prey, and considering that Jap's Viet Minh had been pulling off logistical miracles since the very beginning of the war, those were all pretty bad bets. French and Vietnam forces bring tanks into action as an all-out effort is made to mop up guerrilla forces in the Tonkin Delta Zone in Indochina. 
The main body of the enemy has made a lengthy withdrawal, so as troops comb paddy fields for snipers, artillery opens up on Viet Minh forces far ahead. As the guns continue to hammer the enemy positions, troops move in to closer quarters. Some of the most powerful Viet Minh forces yet encountered during the long drawn-out campaign resist for many hours. Casualties are heavy on both sides. Tenderly a wounded Vietnamese is taken on the long journey back to base hospital. Often the retreating enemy leave barbed booby traps hidden in the paddy fields which pierce the feet of stretcher bearers struggling through the water. Helicopters have already become part of army equipment in Indochina, just as they have in Malaya. Unlike the heartening reports of General Templar's successes, news from Indochina indicates that a long, grim struggle lies ahead for the French. So Navarre settled on the valley of Dien Bien Phu, a bare 10 miles from the Laotian border, in the far west of the Tonkinese highlands. Remember, if Tonkin looks sort of like popcorn kernel, this is all the way on the left of that. And all of the Viet Minh base areas and the French base areas are all the way on the right of that in the Red River Delta, which is like the kernel of that piece of popcorn. So, as part of an operation codenamed Castor, not Castor like a beaver, but Castor and Pollux, paratroopers would drop into the bowl of Dien Bien Phu in late November and secure it so that a larger garrison force could fly in. Part of the force would hold the new base, blocking a primary route into Laos, sitting in the middle of Giap's lines of supply, and part of it would harry any Viet Minh that it could find. Meanwhile, the GCMA, the commandos, would use the new base as an anchor point, making their dangerous missions a little less lonely. Now, the French, as usual, let word of the coming operation at Dien Bien Phu slip to the press, to their paramours, to their subordinates, to their friends in the VNA, to just about everybody. Even if Viet Minh intelligence hadn't been excellent, and it was, they probably would have known to the day that Castor was going to step off. Now, obviously the French adventure in the valley of Dien Bien Phu wasn't going to end in a way that glorified the strategic genius of the men who made it happen. But despite everything I said in the last section, it wasn't the worst idea a French commander-in-chief had ever had. Although that's not a high bar to clear. Dien Bien Phu was the largest highland valley in the whole country, and maybe in all of Southeast Asia, stretching some 10 miles north to south and as many as 5 miles east to west, although it was narrower in parts, meaning that the French forces there would have room to maneuver, and that the Viet Minh would have a hard time hemming them in on all sides as at Na San or Hoa Bin. The valley sat at the confluence of three ancient trade routes, and as fall reports, quote, whoever controlled the basin, legend taught, controlled the region and the entry into Laos and the upper Mekong, unquote. Now, that might sound strange because the Mekong's down in South Vietnam, but once it goes back up towards its headwaters, it curves through Cambodia and it heads up into Laos. Uh, so it takes, a, it takes a hard right turn, and that's, that's, why, that's why they're talking about the upper Mekong. Anyway, the native Thai and Mio populations around the valley produced opium, and most of the opium trade, which the Viet Minh used to finance some of their purchases from the Chinese, went through Dien Bien Phu. The valley's location made it impossible for Jap to ignore. And if it was tough for the French to supply even with planes, it would be even harder for the Viet Minh to hike their way to it, 500 miles of jungle and mountain away from their base areas in the Viet Bac. Navarre entrusted the planning and running of Operation Castor, the base it set up, and the later battle to his northern commander in Tonkin, General René Cogni. Reminding you now, the 
French commander-in-chief, he runs his operation out of Saigon, and he's got subordinate commanders in the north. René Cogni is like the second military guy on the French side in Vietnam. He runs the war in the north out of Hanoi. Anyway, from fall, quote, Cogni, then 48 and a muscular 6 feet 4 inches tall, was probably the only French general who was both a graduate of France's most prestigious engineering school, the École Polytechnique, and the holder of a diploma in political science and a doctorate in jurisprudence. The latter two acquired on bootleg basis when the army had sent him on special duty to acquire additional military engineering training while he personally preferred political science and the law. Well-liked by his troops and irresistible to women, he had been one of the favorite subordinates of the late Marshal de Latre de Tassigny, and he had inherited from him a taste for military pomp and circumstance. An officially approved biographical article stated that if, quote, a sudden fear takes hold of him. He lets it explode, masters it very rapidly, and does not bear any grudges, unquote. Now, General Henri Navarre, the French commander-in-chief, liked General René Cogni at the outset of their relationship. Cogni, meanwhile, thought Navarre was a prick from the very beginning, and both of them would grow to openly hate each other over the last year of the war. They got in a legal battle back in France over who had responsibility for what Dien Bien Phu became after the war, and Cogni spent decades claiming that he'd been forced into it by Navarre. Cogni contended that while he'd been happy to implement Castor, that is the initial drop into the valley, it had always been with an understanding that the base would be lightly defended, used entirely as a mooring point for tribal and commando operations. Logoval thinks that that's an exaggeration, and that Cogni and Navarre were of one mind, at least at the outset, about the operation. I'm not sure where he gets that, since Logoval relies at least as much as I do on Bernard Fall's books. And Fall quotes communications sent from Hanoi to Saigon, that is from Cogni to Navarre, just before Castor, in which Cogni told Navarre that he was definitely not on board. This is directly from a teletype message, quote, It seems that to the general staff, the occupation of Dien Bien Phu will close the road to Luang Prabang, and deprive the Viet Minh of the rice of the region. In that kind of country, you can't interdict a road. This is a European-type notion, without any value here. The Viets can get through anywhere. We can see this right here in the Red River Delta. The rice surplus provided by Dien Bien Phu will only feed one division for three months. Therefore, it would only make a fractional contribution to the enemy campaign in Laos. I am persuaded that Dien Bien Phu shall become, whether we like it or not, a battalion meat grinder with no possibility of large-scale radiating out from it, as soon it will be blockaded by a single Viet Minh regiment. See example of Nasan, unquote. That is, Cogni says that rather than being an anchor point for commando raids or a real airland base that would allow operations in force against the Viet Minh, the garrison would be hemmed in and then attacked in a siege. Cogni reminded Navarre in the same teletype message that their intelligence put twice as many Viet Minh in the immediate area of Dien Bien Phu as soldiers they were planning on dropping, and asked the other general for reinforcements. Quote, If, against the clearly unfavorable opinion of which the commanding general of the ground forces in North Vietnam, that is Cogni, admits himself to respectfully express, unquote, Navarre decided to go forward with Castor. That is, if Navarre decided to do this dumb thing, then he should get more troops. That, that's the whole point of that. Navarre wasn't as worried about those issues. Sure, Dien Bien Phu might get hemmed in, but with the memory of the successful defense of and withdrawal from Na San just in the rearview mirror, would that even be such a bad thing? If Jap stopped moving into Laos and turned around to face the French, far from his home base, and at the mercy, Navarre imagined, of French air power, so much the better. They'd destroy the bulk of his conventional forces in a siege. 
So the day after the arrival of Cogni's teletype message, that is November 14th, Navarre issued the final plans for Castor, giving it the go-ahead for the 20th of November. 1,827 paratroops jumped into Dien Bien Phu on that day, the 20th of November, 1953, and wrested it from the handful of Viet Minh on guard there, losing 15 dead and 53 men wounded in the process, compared to the Viet Minh's 90 casualties. Equipment drops began the same day, and the airborne engineers began fixing up the airstrip immediately, finishing it in time for General Cogni to arrive two days later for inspections. Most of the units which originally jumped into the valley were to be pulled out to fight elsewhere once the non-parachutists, or as my folks know, legs, had been flown in. And as Fall says, quote, The paratroopers knew that they were not going to stay in Dien Bien Phu, and understandably, they did not go about the business of building field fortifications with the sense of urgency they no doubt would have displayed had they known that the valley was soon to be attacked by vastly superior forces, unquote. The forecast, by the way, for that initial jump had read rain in the afternoon, but the skies were clear, and the French were lucky to have that, because, as they well knew, Dien Bien Phu received at least half again as much rainfall as any other valley in Tonkin. Fall reports French meteorological data as recording an average of five feet of rain in Dien Bien Phu between March and August every year, with rain clouds covering the valley for practically the entire monsoon season difficult situation for a valley that was to be supplied entirely by air. Now the valley itself, as we said earlier, was some 50 miles square or so, 10 north to south, opening up wider in the north and closing down a little narrower in the south, sort of like a vase, like a flower vase. I'll have maps and maps and maps in the notes, but this is an audio show, so I'll do my best, but you're going to want to consult those maps. Coming down from east and west and meeting dead center in the far north of the valley were two streams, meaning a shape like a capital Y, which joined to form the Nam Yum, which ran right down the middle of the valley into the south. On the eastern side of that river, that is the right side, was Provincial Road 41, which was barely better than a dirt track. On the left side of that river, the west side, was the Piste Pavie, the Pavie Track, a donkey trail named for the first Frenchman to happen upon the valley. And that thing ran northwest to Lai Chao, the leftover French airhead from Jap's northwest offensive of the previous year. So, if the Nam Yum River looks like a Y, two branches come in, they meet, they go south, right? The two roads also look like a Y. Road 41 goes up into the right, the Pavie Track goes up into the left, both come down in the middle of the valley, again like a Y, and they head south, one on one side of the Nam Yum and one on the other side of the Nam Yum. Okay? Good. The French set their main base, what would come to be called the center of resistance in the middle of the valley, both north-south and east-west, sitting astride the Nam Yum River and the two old roads. Dead center. They chose that spot because there were a few groups of hills they could garrison around that spot, and because besides those hills, it was flat, clear land out to the valley's wooded sides, meaning that any Viet Minh looking to attack would have to approach over open ground to the French-held hills. Even that choice, though, was a sign of French plans for the valley going wrong. The valley had originally been chosen because if the French could hold all of the heights around it, it would provide an incredible base of operations, that is, in the middle. And if their perimeter was breached, that is, their line of troops on these hills around the valley were breached, the valley floor was a space where the French could fight a war of maneuver on open ground versus the guerrilla and jungle fighting of most of the war. Just an example there. 
valley's kind of the shape that I described. There's hills all around the edges of it. The French, we imagine, are going to have a line of guys on those hills. The Viet Minh break through somewhere, and then tanks can race over the open ground and counterattack to close the breach, right? That's the original plan. The problem was that the valley's perimeter was no less than 50 miles long. Longer if you actually look at how far apart the tops of the hills were. And Fall, who knows the French military, says that defending a line of that length would have taken 50 battalions. That is one battalion per mile, or, or per 1,500 yards, which is about a mile. Or 10 times the men slated for the operation, and many, many more battalions than were available in all of Indochina. Not many more than there were in Indochina, but many more than there were available in Indochina. So, rather than occupying the entire valley perimeter, the French could really only garrison a small part of the valley bottom, abandoning the idea of the surrounding heights entirely. Which is a change of plan, and one that will not necessarily work out well for the French. The last thing to note on geography here is that the valley was also inhabited. It was home to around 10,000 Thai Highlanders in a couple of dozen small villages. As for the eventual details, the final details that Navarre lays out for Castor and Dien Bien Phu's mission, they were pretty simple. Castor would drop in, which we already talked about, secure the valley bottom, which we already talked about, and fix up an old airstrip there, which we already talked about, left over for an older French occupation. An eventual five French battalions and some support staff would take up residence, some 4,000 to 5,000 men, setting up a lightly defended base from which to mount operations. Navarre wrote in a directive shortly after the jump, on November 30th, 10 days after the jump, that the garrison would use, quote, at least one half of its strength, unquote, in operations designed to hunt down and destroy Viet Minh units, and to delay the establishment of the cordon the Jap would inevitably order to be put around the valley. Not half of its garrison that day or that week, half of its garrison all the time. The valley would also serve, says Navarre, as a permanent base for the GCMA, the commandos, and would, as part of those offensive operations, link up with the forces of Colonel de Crivecourt, or Colonel Heartbreak, um, in case you know French and you can tell I'm not saying that right, who was the French overall commander in Laos. Fall wrote that there were serious problems even with these early plans. The first was that even the smaller perimeter the French actually set up was still 31 miles around, something that per military doctrine would have taken some 31 battalions to man compared to the five on hand. Second, Navarre had written in the November 30 directive that the garrison was to build, quote, sophisticated field defenses, unquote, which would be totally impossible if, quote, at least one half, unquote, of the men were to be constantly engaged in expeditions against the Viet Minh. The result being that while the garrison did indeed mount those offensive expeditions, the work of building and fortifying defenses went mostly undone. From Fall, quote, Navarre's lack of first-hand knowledge of jungle warfare in the marshes of Indochina was the principal cause of a fatal flaw in reasoning. On the basis of intelligence provided to him, Navarre felt that the Viet Minh could hardly concentrate more than one division at Dien Bien Phu within a month's time, and that it would be impossible for the enemy to maintain more than a two-division siege force at Dien Bien Phu even for a limited period, in view of the severe pounding of his communication lines by the French Air Force." Unquote. What the French should have known, what Navarre should have known, by talking to his subordinates from their long experience of the Indochina War, in which Ho Chi Minh's headquarters, even though it was bare miles north of Hanoi, had been totally impervious to air power, and in which French napalm, while it worked alright during actual battles, had totally failed to mess with Jap's logistical apparatus, is that while Jap might have a hard time getting troops and supplies to Dien Bien Phu, French airplanes would hardly be a deciding factor. 
General Henri Navarre went into Dien Bien Phu very optimistic, despite that signs were ominous from the first days of the valley's occupation. On December 4th, for example, some two weeks after the beginning of Operation Castor, Major Jean Soquet's 1st Colonial Parachute Battalion got mauled within a few thousand yards of the valley center. The folks that mauled them were, per documents on their bodies, not regional guerrillas, but conspicuously out of place, regular troops. In Indochina, French troops move up the Mekong River into Laos to strike against Viet Minh forces. As patrols footslog their way across country, guns give cover. Jungles and swamps, like those facing British boys in Malaya, have to be negotiated. Ahead are some of their own men surrounded by the enemy and without sufficient supplies to keep going. Dakotas fly in with extra ammunition and food. Reports reveal that French efforts to quell the Reds are faring badly. Already, much of Laos has been overrun and still the Viet Minh are advancing. Until more troops are sent to combat these highly organized forces, it seems certain that the Reds will hold the whip hand in Indochina. The Viet Minh, who were well aware of the French plans even before they dropped into the valley and massacred the few regional troops stationed there, were devoting as much thought to Dien Bien Phu as Cogni and Navarre were. They were never worried that the new French plans would actually hamper their ability to move on Laos. Nassan and Lai Chao had been just as much in their line of march, and Jap was confident that he could cordon off Dien Bien Phu and just go around it like he had with those other airheads. But they were interested in the possibility of inflicting a serious defeat on an isolated French garrison, if they could overcome the problems they'd had in attacking Nassan. There were issues, though. To take a well-defended position so far from their bases of support would need the participation of huge numbers of troops, coolies, and porters. They would have to delay plans in other parts of the country, and a real failure would set back the war effort for years since it would give the Americans more time to arm the French and the French more time to expand Saigon's Vietnamese army. The decision to give battle, when it looked like that was exactly what the French wanted, would be a gamble and a huge one, on the level of the decision to attack the Delatra line in 1951. Drawing from Jap's own account of proceedings, the Communist Party's Central Committee, which was by this point synonymous with the leadership of the Viet Minh and the DRVN in general, was well aware of Navarre's war plans. They knew he wanted to make massed attacks in Cochin China and Annam, where their conventional forces were weakest, and they knew they couldn't do much about that except melt into the jungle wherever Navarre happened to attack. From Fallnow, quote, end quote, We must strike a powerful blow, unquote, Ho Chi Minh told the assembled, opening and closing his right raised hand as he spoke. Quote, but if you spread your hand out, it is easy to break your fingers one by one. We must find a way to force the solid block of enemy mobile groups to spread out into a number of pieces so that we can gradually annihilate them, one at a time, thereby causing them to suffer complete defeat, unquote, and unquote. Of the whole Navarre strategy, there was one point at which the Viet Minh could hit back, one finger that they could break, and that was Dien Bien Phu. They'd concentrate on political work and guerrilla warfare in the center and south, because to do otherwise would be to repeat the mistakes of the 1951 spring offensive on the Red River Delta that Delatra had crushed. 
Dien Bien Phu, however, was exposed, far from French lines, in the middle of what was technically Viet Minh-held territory, and subject to an elaborate encirclement. Likewise, if Navarre wanted to concentrate on the deltas, and had moved troops into them for that purpose, then the natural revolutionary response would be to attack anywhere but in the deltas. Quoting from Jap now, Dien Bien Phu was advantageous to us. It laid bare the contradiction of the enemy between occupation of territory and concentration of forces, between the occupation of the mountain positions and that of the delta positions. In consideration of the aforesaid assessment, the units of our regular forces, which were marching to the northwest, were ordered immediately to attack and destroy the enemy at Lai Chao. At the same time, a wing of our forces advanced rapidly towards the north of Dien Bien Phu, cut the retreat of the enemy from Lai Chao to Dien Bien Phu, prevented him from marching from Dien Bien Phu to meet his forces coming from Lai Chao. At the same time, we closed on the enemy at Dien Bien Phu, encircled him, and prepared for the battle to come." Unquote. The Central Committee and its Chinese advisors decided that they would take the bait in the valley on the 6th of December 1953, and the vast Viet Minh military apparatus swung into motion. Now at about the same time in early December, the commander of Dien Bien Phu that we're going to be worrying about arrived to replace Jean Gilles, who was involved in the defense of Nassan last show and who commanded the garrison for the first couple of weeks. Colonel Christian Marie Ferdinand de la Croix de Castries came from a line of high officers that stretched back centuries. A marshal, an admiral, and eight generals, at least that we know of, including one who fought with Lafayette in the American Revolution. He was an aristocrat with a marked lisp, a womanizer, a dashing cavalryman, and an aggressive war leader. From Fall's book about Dien Bien Phu, Hell in a Very Small Place, quote, as his official biography showed, the French Army's public information office had soon realized how very much this impressed American journalists that Castries' ancestors had served France with the sword since the Crusades. In June 1940, he fought for three days with 60 men against a whole German battalion, reinforced by tanks, and was taken prisoner only after he was wounded and his men were out of ammunition. After three unsuccessful escape attempts, he succeeded in digging his way out from Offlag 4D, a maximum security camp deep in Silesia, along with 20 other officers. After a hair-raising trip across the breadth of Germany, he returned to France. He promptly crossed the Spanish border illegally and joined the Free French Forces in Africa, unquote. De Castries first shipped for Indochina in 1946 and made a name for himself as a baradour, a fighter, in contrast to the rest of the military aristocrats there, who largely served, at least stereotypically, as staff officers in Saigon and Hanoi. Delatre gave him command of the Red River Delta, taking a shine to this young blue blood's guts and style, with his red spahi cap and matching scarf, his riding crop, and his reputation with the women of Paris and Hanoi. Quote, Seriously wounded in a large-scale ambush, in which both his legs were badly fractured, De Castries was repatriated to France for an assignment with shape. Although still limping from his wounds, he was to use a cane henceforth, he managed, through an effort of iron will, to participate in horse-jumping events during November 1952. With the appointment of his former regimental commander as commander-in-chief in Indochina, that is Navarre, De Castries wasn't happy until he was assigned to Indochina once more in August 1953, and given the choice command of a mobile group in a different sector of the Red River Delta. At 50, he was a full colonel, commander of the Legion of Honor, wounded three times and mentioned 18 times in dispatches, unquote. 
De Castries, as soon as he came into the valley to replace Jean Gilles, was informed by senior officers that the commando groups operating around the valley were already getting hemmed in by Viet Minh troops. The new commander realized immediately that the Battle of Dien Bien Phu would be a defensive one. But given his cavalry roots, he still focused on the attack, doubling down on the offensive stabs that Navarre had outlined for the base, and emphasizing the need for immediate counterattacks once the siege had eventually been joined. De Castries had been picked for the command in part because of his reputation as an aggressive cavalryman, and he stuck to his origins, calling for the delivery of ten light tanks by air to the valley. These were relatively small M24s, chaffees, known to the French as bisons, recently produced in the United States and delivered to the French by ship. They had to break the things down and fly them into the valley in pieces, where Foreign Legion auto mechanics had constructed in miniature a replica of the Detroit assembly line that had originally created them, putting the tanks together with a lifting rig and brute strength, turning one out every three days, giving to Castries a platoon of three by Christmas and all ten tanks by mid-January. Now, you might remember from that bit from Jap up above that once he decided to offer the French the fight they wanted at Dien Bien Phu, he immediately ordered his Viet Minh to move on Lai Chao, the other airhead that the French had maintained in the area. Lai Chao, held since the Northwest Offensive in 1952, lay 200 kilometers to the north of Dien Bien Phu, connected to it by the Piste Pavi, the donkey track that lay just to the left of the Nam Yum River in the valley. The French had also turned their attention that way in early December, looking to move its garrison into Dien Bien Phu so as to consolidate everyone they'd have to supply in the area by air. They flew out all of the regular troops and most of the rest by the 12th of December, leaving somewhere between 20 and 29 irregular companies of about 110 Thai tribesmen each, led by French NCOs and lieutenants, to make the trek to Dien Bien Phu on foot. We know, again from Jap, that the Viet Minh had already surrounded Lai Chao in force by the time the 2,000-odd Thai set out for the southern airhead. Only 185 of those who had made the long escape through the mountains eventually arrived at Dien Bien Phu, which eliminated the only other French position in the entire northwest of Vietnam, giving the region over to the Viet Minh and allowing them freedom of communications and movement just when the French could least afford it. Jap kept the pressure up elsewhere, too, he was in the process of moving fully 50% of his regular troops into the vicinity of Dien Bien Phu, so he directed his troops to studiously avoid confronting Navarre's mobile forces in the deltas. At the same time, though, he told them to step up less dangerous sabotage and guerrilla operations wherever the elite mobile groups weren't in evidence. The change from tactics in the previous months, where Viet Minh units sought to give more conventional battle in fewer places, to a proliferation of small attacks in unexpected places, gave French planners who should have been focusing on Dien Bien Phu an impression of the country imploding on all fronts at the same time. Within a week of the fall of Lai Chao on December 12th, when de Castries had really just arrived, it was already clear that Dien Bien Phu had ceased to serve any of its original objectives. The paratroops weren't suited to digging in, the GCMA weren't suited to large-scale warfare, the commando couldn't work anyway without previous political preparation of the area, which the French had never undertaken, and the paratroopers' occupation of the valley was actively turning the population to the Viet Minh. 
They had been hemmed in almost immediately, meaning that offensive stabs were being contained rather than working on their own initiative, and, maybe unbeknownst to the French, the Viet Minh, as soon as they established a cordon around the garrison, which they did immediately, built a path around the valley to bypass the interlopers entirely, meaning that their movement into Laos was totally unhampered. Fall says at this point that the French had to realize two things. That Dien Bien Phu could not serve as a mooring point for the kinds of commando raids and reconnaissances in force that had been operating out of the valley thus far, and that the only possible purpose left that Dien Bien Phu could serve for the French was then the last of its planned uses, as bait to draw the Viet Minh into a pitched battle. From Fall, quote, As it was, the French did neither. Extensive raiding operations were continued, bringing few results in terms of intelligence and being extremely costly in terms of human losses. At the same time, no all-out effort was made to put Dien Bien Phu's fortifications in shape to withstand a major communist assault. Long-range reconnaissance operations left the participating units unable to fortify their positions, unquote. Now, unlike the French, the Viet Minh had been aware from the very beginning, from the moment they decided to give battle on the 6th, that this was where the situation at Dien Bien Phu was headed, for a prolonged, protracted siege. And they had organized their planning around that realization. From Jap's book, quote, Dien Bien Phu was a strong, fortified, entrenched camp. The fortified, entrenched camp was a form of defense newly devised by the enemy on the Indochina War Theater. It had already made its appearance, but on a lower level at Hoa Binh late in 1951 in the Plain of Jars in Laos, and at Na San in 1952 and 53. Before this newest and strongest form of defense, a problem which arose was, should we attack the fortified trench camp, or not? It should be stressed again that when working out operational or tactical solutions, we always proceeded from the fundamental principles of strategic direction which consisted in destroying the enemy effectives and striking only when success is certain. In fact, since the appearance of fortified camps, we worked very hard to study this new form of defense, assess and analyze its strong and weak points, point out adequate tactical principles, as well as the requirements in technique and equipment, and the difficulties to overcome in order to train our troops and make them capable of annihilating the fortified camps. And it could be said that at the beginning of autumn-winter 1953, our troops were prepared for this task. Thus, when realizing that the enemy could strengthen his forces at Dien Bien Phu, and turn it into a fortified, entrenched camp, our party's central committee rapidly took the firm decision to seize the opportunity in order to wipe out this base, unquote. Which is to say, they had been training for just this kind of showdown, and they figured that this was the way to break the Navarre plan and French political will once and for all. Continuing, quote, Dien Bien Phu had all of the strong points of any fortified, entrenched camp, but also its particular strength. Its isolated position in the middle of an immense and hilly region involving the northwest and upper Laos, far away from the rears, chiefly from the enemy's big airfields, made its supply and reinforcement entirely dependent on airway. If this way was cut off or blocked, this powerful fortified entrenched camp would expose all of its weak points, gradually lose its fighting ability and initiative, land in a defensive position, and face more and more intricate conditions. In case of danger, a withdrawal would be very difficult. This is not to mention that the already low fighting spirit of the enemy troops could sink more deeply in case of difficulties or defeat. At Kompong Norton, a village 40 miles north of Kuala Lumpur, 
A Company, the 1st Battalion, the Worcestershire Regiment, get ready for a patrol. Their job? To hunt down red terrorists from the jungle nearby. A 20-year-old Private Sid Latham from Altrincham loads up. The patrol is ready to move. Each day, such patrols set out to strike at the communist guerrillas whose campaign of violence has terrorised all Malaya. Somewhere in the jungle, a party of bandits is believed to be hiding. A Company's patrol moves in. The hunt is on. It's nearly noon and the temperature's about 90 degrees. Private Keith Shrigley, a national serviceman, is from Macclesfield. Checking up their position is 2nd Lieutenant James Marshall. He's from Pershaw in Worcestershire. Their target is still further ahead. The patrol moves cautiously for somewhere in the bush. The bandits may be waiting. The air is damp and alive with mosquitoes. The 2nd Lieutenant Marshal gives the order to halt for a break and posts a guard. They've been on their feet for a long time now, and it's no joke foot-slogging through country like this with heavy arms and equipment. But you've got to watch where you rest in the jungle. The undergrowth is swarming with leeches. Joe Spittle and Joe Gandy get ready for tea. James Marshall and George Phillips, who used to be a farmer in Leicestershire, have the same idea. The Tommy cookers lit up, won't be long before Char's ready. There's no one for the pot out here. That's precious stuff, particularly if you can't get back to base before nightfall. Sid Latham and Harry Hodgkinson have both been in Malaya for over a year, so they know all the ropes. Tunstall Stoke-on-Trent is Harry's hometown. Another chap from Stoke is Private Derek Jones. He used to work in an iron foundry, but he's been out in the bush for the last 15 months. Harry Smith and Frank Alsop are both 19 years old. Pathy News cameraman Bill Jordan tries some hot tea as the rain starts. The patrol turns back to base as the weather gets worse. It'll soon be dark and the rain will cover the bandits' tracks. That's the way it goes out here. Back to camp just before nightfall comes the patrol. It's been a long day. Not much to report either, nothing to make headlines in the newspapers. Just another patrol. They probably won't even mention it in their letters home. Yet the British troops in Malaya slowly but steadily are smashing the Reds' reign of terror. And they'll keep at it till the job's done. It's around this time that we ought to start giving ourselves an idea of who's in and around the valley and where. DeCastries wrote Cogni a couple days after arriving to tell him that 5,000 men was in no way going to cut it, and Hanoi managed to beef up his effectives to around 11,000 men by the end of December. That's nine infantry battalions of around 750 men each, a bunch of support staff, about three dozen pieces of artillery and their operators, the 10 tanks, and two mobile field brothels. The Viet Minh, whose numbers French Air Force Intelligence estimated to within 10% on December 27th, reached nearly 50,000 men, including 33,000 combatants, neatly achieving the 3 to 1 ratio that modern military doctrine says you need to overwhelm a fixed defense. The other 17,000 Viet Minh were porters, coolies, and support staff, and we'll get to what they were up to in a minute here. Now, I'm going to go over the geography of the French positions, and I think that I have another hand trick to help me out. 
but what would be way easier on you is to check the maps in the show notes. If you're like me, you're going to want to trace out one of those early ones on a sheet of paper and mark it up as we go along here, but for everybody else, I got this other thing. So, make the peace sign again with your left hand. Back of your hand facing you, peace sign up in the air, fingers spread wide. On the right, your index finger is Provincial Road 41. It leaves the valley to the northeast around your fingernail. In the west, your middle finger is the Pavi track. It heads up to Lai Chau, again leaving the valley around the fingernail. Your knuckles on back to your wrist, those are the two paths, the two roads, converging and traveling south till they leave the valley, sort of where your elbow is. Your fist is where the main French position, the center of resistance, is located. This works out nicely because while the French set up camp astride those two roads, the valley kept going to the west, where your fist kind of keeps extending to the left, and it ended pretty abruptly to the east, with bejungled slopes rising up just after where your thumb would be if you tucked it alongside that peace sign. Got all that? Pavi track, middle finger, road 41, index finger, center of resistance right on top of them as they go back into your fist. Tucked up by the nail of your middle finger in the northwest was Strong Point Gabrielle, meant to overlook the Pavi track as it came down from the north and to give the main position a little room to breathe. It's about a mile and a half away from the center of resistance. Between the second and third knuckles on your index finger is Beatrice, which fills the same role along road 41. Now, if you do the peace sign and also stick out your pinky finger, which nobody does but do it for me right now, that finger doesn't represent any actual land feature, but its second knuckle, that's about where Anne-Marie is. Anne-Marie sits on top of a crescent moon-shaped hill, and while it overlooks no road, it does command the flats out in front of the French to the west. These first three strong points, Anne-Marie in the west, Gabrielle in the northwest, and Beatrice in the northeast, think of them together. They're Dien Bien Phu's early warning system and its first line of defense. Now, closer in, from left to right, we've got the Hugettes, a set of strong points that run from the first knuckle of your pinky, the one that's attached to your fist, to the first knuckle of your middle finger. So, sort of along the top of your fist there, between your pinky and your middle finger. They back up Anne-Marie on the flats, and they protect the airfield, which lies parallel to your middle finger just about at that first knuckle, along the Pavy track. In the east, between the mountains and the main French center of resistance, we've got Dominique and Elion. They both sit on the right side of your index finger, the right side of your fist, alongside it as it moves back into your fist and down towards your wrist. Dominique is to the north of Elion, and they both occupy a few little mounds that rise up from the valley floor before the real hills that end the valley. These three points, too, I want you to think of together. Hugette holds the left, western side of Dien Bien Phu against the flat ground, and Dominique and Elion hold the hills on the right or east. They are the fortress's second and really last line of defense. Now, there's names for all this stuff in the middle and the stuff that defends from the south on top of your index and middle fingers and your fist, but you don't need to know those, and when we get to it, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know. What you do need to know is that way further south, like right on top of your elbow, at the valley's extreme southern end, there's another strong point, a huge one, named Isabel, and it operates as a base in its own right. It also sits right on top of the Pavi track on the left, the Provincial Road on the right, and the Namyum River that lies between them in the center. And uh, there's a whole story to be told about Isabel. I'm mostly going to leave it out of this one, just for time's sake, but I'll talk about it a little bit when we need to know about it. Now, I'll reiterate all this stuff more briefly once it gets crucial to understanding what's going on, but if you can't pull up a map or open the show notes as you're listening, and you don't want to draw a map of your own, which would be ideal, 
try to keep this hand thing in mind. And even more than that, the two sets of three most important strong points. Left to right, it's Anne-Marie, Gabrielle, and Beatrice on the outskirts. Close in, it's Huguette on the left and center, and Dominique and Alian on the right. Now, supplying the 11,000 men occupying all of those strong points and positions in the valley was the French Indochinese Air Force. And that Air Force was thin. Available for use in North Vietnam were 70 smaller C-47s and something like 15 or so bigger C-119s, known as flying boxcars. Those small numbers of planes were by this point coming almost entirely from the United States, but the French didn't even have the crews to fly them. They could only man 52 of the C-47s and 10 of the larger boxcars. The Air Force coordinator for Dien Bien Phu in Hanoi, a Colonel Jean-Louis Nico, had only even managed the 65 planes needed for the original caster drop into the valley by half-staffing all of the crews and flying a C-47 himself. Before long, the French began shanghaiing civilian crews for the Dien Bien Phu run, filling up those empty planes with regular airline pilots. Not long after that, Americans belonging to Civil Air Transport, the CIA's fake airline, would also start flying over the valley, making up for the drastic French shortfall in air crews, even as more planes arrived from the United States. The crews were needed in the first place to fly supplies to the garrison and to run interdiction missions, bombing and strafing likely Viet Minh logistical routes and what few actual soldiers they managed to spot from the air. But as Fall writes, quote, Apparently, the U.S. Air Force had failed, at least by late 1953, that is, like right now, to inform its French colleagues in the Far East of the highly ineffective American aerial interdiction operations in North Korea in 1951-52, known under the codename of Operation Strangle. Strangle, as its name suggests, consisted of round-the-clock aerial bombardment of every road and rail line, of every tunnel and culvert, likely to be able to support the North Korean and Chinese supply system leading to the Korean front line. When faced with that challenge, the communists in Korea simply switched, as would their Vietnamese comrades, to hundreds of thousands of human carriers who did not depend upon bridges and tunnels and other obligatory passage points. To the best of anyone's knowledge, the communist supply system in Korea never failed its frontline soldiers, whereas the road-bound and mechanized American supply system on the other side was often affected by poor roads and bad weather." Unquote. Now here at the outset and for the rest of the existence of the French garrison at Dien Bien Phu, some of the most heroic and Herculean work was being done not by the frontline soldiers, but by the engineers, specifically the 31st Engineering Battalion under Major André Sudrat. Between Castor's jump-off date in November and the end of December, the troops on the ground had dug their own shallow foxholes, fixed up the airfield, and done little else. Sudrat jumped in on the 21st of December and worked on Castries until the 26th, when the garrison commander ordered every position in the garrison to actually fortify itself, building and reinforcing dugouts that could stand up to 105mm shells. Fall explains that that was actually a very specific kind of order. Quote, The engineering manuals of every modern army have a standard answer to this problem. Two layers of wood beams at least six inches in diameter, separated by three feet of closely packed earth topped off by sandbags to absorb splinters. No such protecting roof was to cover an unsupported area more than six feet in width. Time-tested in two world wars in which the 105mm had been the standard field artillery weapon, the average tonnage of engineering materials necessary to protect a unit of a given size was known to the last ton." Unquote. One squad. 30 tons of engineering materials, one machine gun position, 12 tons, 
A battalion has 55 squads and 75 automatic weapons, which means you need 2,550 tons of engineering materials, beams, etc., and another 500 tons of barbed wire, mines, and other accessories, which is the word that Fall continually uses here. Sudrat did the math on all of this and figured out that to get Dien Bien Phu ready for an eventual siege, he would need 36,000 tons of engineering material and barbed wire and other accessories. There were two serious problems with those numbers. The first was that the valley was almost entirely treeless. There was scrub, and the French used that for cook fires. There was bamboo, but it wasn't thick enough, and I imagine the French hadn't worked with it enough to know how to use it in place of logs. There were trees on the surrounding hills, yes, but with a lack of armored moving equipment to get them back to the base, and with the Viet Minh getting closer and making every woodcutting expedition a deadly proposition, they didn't end up being much of an option either. The French found a ton or two of wood by deconstructing every single building in the villages around their camp, a measure which Fall says, quote, the population rightly considered a barbarism, and which threw it automatically on the communist side, unquote. Once everything in the valley had been stripped bare, Sudrat had collected a total of 2,200 tons of wood, meaning that he was still 34,000 tons short. And that left them the planes. The C-47s could carry just under 3 tons. Dien Bien Phu needed 150 tons of regular supplies, that is, ammo, reinforcements, food, and medicine, per day just to stay alive. Colonel Nico in Hanoi, if we recall, had 52 flyable 47s. As in, all 52 had to carry just normal supplies every day just to keep the base alive. Now, there were also those flying boxcars, which could carry about 12 tons each. Ten of those gave Sudrat an extra 120 tons a day, or so. So it would take only nine months of non-stop flights of only engineering materials in those boxcars to meet his totals. And that's if no planes were shot down, if the airstrip stayed open, and if the Viet Minh decided to wait nine months to allow the French to prepare their position. When Sudrat gave his calculations to Colonel de Castries, they both knew that they would not have nine months, and that the engineering materials would not be forthcoming. Fall cites Sudrat here directly, quote, end quote, that leaves us with exactly enough materials to protect the headquarters command post, the signal center, and the x-ray room of the underground hospital, unquote, said Sudrat, quote, the rest of Dien Bien Phu will have to get on as best as it can, unquote. And that was exactly what happened, unquote. Sudrat decided to devote what little cargo space they'd give him to barbed wire and accessories. At the very least, those could go to supply just about all the strong points in need. It wasn't just a problem of supplies, either. One squad dugout for 10 men took the full-time work of a 40-man platoon for 8 days. One of those machine gun bunkers, 5 days. One battalion would have to do nothing, that is, one battalion of 750 men would have to do nothing but construction work for two solid months to protect itself against 105mm shells, probably more time than that given that they didn't have any materials. But the garrison, following Navarre's orders to devote at all times half of its strength to offensive stabs around the valley, did not have the time, the men, or the energy to do anything like that amount of work. Cogni and Navarre, both holding out for the best while failing to prepare for the worst, kept up the hope that de Castries would be able to attack enough around the valley that it would never actually come down to a siege, despite the abundant evidence that Dien Bien Phu was already surrounded by a massive force of Viet Minh soldiers. Everyone on the French side, likewise, had faith that even if the Viet Minh managed to move heavy artillery into position, and how likely was that anyway, that French counter-battery fire and air power would knock it out before they'd need to use those bunkers. 
And what not even the engineering coordinator Major Sudrat emphasized, perhaps because it was impossible, was camouflage on the valley floor. Within a month of the French arrival, that is by mid-December, the troops had burned off all of the scrub, dismantled all of the buildings, and trampled all of the grass, leaving their position totally bare and totally exposed to Vietnamese observers. Every detail of the French strongpoints was even more easily spotted because Dien Bien Phu's under earth and clay were a much brighter red than the topsoil. From fall, quote, each artillery piece and mortar could be seen from far away, glistening in its wide open firing position. And since there was neither space nor materials available for alternate gun positions, and since the artillery commander maintained open gun pits so that the guns could be more easily moved and without fear of enemy harassment, enemy observers hidden in the hills were able to accurately pinpoint every heavy weapon in the fortress before the battle ever began, unquote. Also within Major Sudrat's ambit were water and power. Amoebic dysentery was endemic to the water in the valley, which makes sense given that the Vietnamese spread night soil on their heavily irrigated rice, meaning that the engineers had to keep a water purifier running, and they did to the very last day of the battle. Likewise, underground parts of the base, which got much, much larger once the battle was joined, needed electric power for their lights, along with the commander's radios and the hospital's x-ray machine, and Sudrat's people likewise kept their generators running and their cables uncut for the whole length of the fighting. Now, De Castries' order to reinforce all of the positions in the valley to withstand those 105 shells was precautionary, but it took on a more urgent aspect in early January. On the 9th of that month, French spotter planes had laid eyes on Viet Minh porters moving 105mm field guns away from their base areas and towards Dien Bien Phu. This now became the major threat. The French, as long as they could remain safe from everything but the direct attacks of Viet Minh infantry, had a pretty good shot at hurling back whatever Jap could throw at them. But if Jap could hit them where they lived, they were in a bad spot. They still weren't too worried, though, for three reasons. The French still doubted that Jap could get any quantity of guns this deep in the highlands, let alone the hundreds of thousands of shells that he would need to make them a menace. They also knew that if the Viet Minh kept the guns where the guns were safe, on the back slopes of the hills around the valley, they'd never actually be able to reach the base. Their, their range just wasn't long enough. And if they moved those guns close enough to hit the base onto the facing slopes of those hills, the artillery commander, the one-armed Colonel Charles Piroth, assured his commander that his counter-battery fire would destroy the pieces and massacre their crews before they could do any kind of damage. Peroth's big guns were divided up between the main position and a smaller battery on Isabel, the big strong point that's down by your elbow, the reasoning being that Isabel's pieces could fire in support from an angle that the guns in the center of resistance would not be able to reach. Which is not a bad plan, except that the guns at Isabel could not reach those three outlying strong points, Anne-Marie, Gabrielle, and Beatrice, and that would be important. Perov's plan for the use of his artillery was pretty simple, and he was happy to explain it to every one of the visiting generals and dignitaries that were constantly flying through the fortress. Quoting from Fall here, quote, Firstly, the Viet Minh won't succeed in getting their artillery through to here. Secondly, if they do get here, we'll smash them. And thirdly, even if they do manage to keep on shooting, they will be unable to supply their pieces with enough ammunition to do us any real harm, unquote. Unfortunately, even before taking the Viet Minh into account, there were some flaws with the plan. Perroth's guns relied on Moraine's spotter planes and small observation posts which were set up on hills around the valley, both of which ceased to exist entirely mere days into the battle. Perroth also, in his confidence, decided not to dig casements or deeper firing pits for his guns, like we mentioned a minute ago. 
Leaving them exposed, he figured, would allow them to reorient more quickly. And besides, the Viet Minh would never manage to lob a shell into his firing positions anyway. When, on a visit in January, Navarre speculated about the Viet Minh's ability to hide their artillery up on the hills, Perroth replied, quote, Mon général, no Viet Minh cannon will be able to fire three rounds before being destroyed by my artillery. Navarre looked at him, looked back at the vista of the valley beyond, and then said quietly, Maybe so, but this won't be like Nassan, unquote. Again from Fall here, quote, Later in January, when an expected Viet Minh attack failed to materialize, fate gave Piroth one more chance. Part of a party of visitors, Marc Jacquet, the French Secretary of State for Associated States Affairs, took Piroth to one side and he said, and this is from Fall, quote, Colonel, I know that there are hundreds of unemployed artillery pieces around Hanoi. Take advantage of the fact that a member of the government is here to get yourself some extra pickings of them. Piroth told Jacquet that he already had more guns than he needed and added, if I get 30 minutes of advance warning, my counter-battery will be effective. Navy is enlisting a new recruit in New York, and it's something of a special event. Officials of international business machines and high-ranking naval officers are on hand for the induction of the Navy's newest recruit. It's called the Naval Ordnance Research Calculator, NORC for short, and it's described as the world's fastest electronic brain, never needing a vacation for multiplication. The lady can tell what's going on by watching the numbers, if she doesn't blink. Enough flashing lights for a Christmas tree and spinning reels loaded with data help Nort to handle a million numbers a second, solving complex research problems for the Navy without even a pencil. The Viet Minh, much more than the French, were preparing for the siege that they knew was coming, rather than hoping would never materialize. From Jap, quote, Acceleration of preparatory work, opening the road to haul guns, building of positions for artillery and infantry, supply work, thorough preparation of the attacking forces, observation of the situation of the enemy. That's a chapter heading. It was precisely when the enemy had prepared to face all eventuality and used every means to cope with the situation that we carried out a gigantic preparatory work to realize the determination of the party central committee to launch a big offensive for the annihilation of the Dien Bien Phu fortified entrenched camp, unquote. Jap's first step was to improve the Pavi mule track, the one that goes up to Lai Chao, and to get troops moving toward the valley. Viet Minh engineers kept the road open till the end of the battle, despite bombardments in the monsoon, and men likewise flowed in an unending torrent towards Dien Bien Phu, whether they were soldiers or whether they were one of the tens of thousands of porters moving supplies. That was weapons, ammunition, and food. The porter system had limitations like those of rocket ships. If a porter started his two-week journey with 60 pounds of rice on top of the 200 pounds of other gear he had on his pushed bicycle, he would only have enough at the end of that journey to give two pounds to the soldier at Dien Bien Phu and feed himself on the way home. Jap knew that if he wanted to make a serious attempt on Dien Bien Phu, he'd need literally every spare man under his command. An eventual 43,000 troops and 15,000 porters on the front line. That is not including the porters that had to supply that 58,000-man force. They would need 300 tons of ammunition, 4,200 tons of rice, 2 pounds at a time, 100 tons of dried vegetables, 100 tons of dried meat, and 12 tons of sugar, and that was just to get started, not including what they'd need to keep going for the 45 days that the Viet Minh estimated the battle would last. To get all of this ready, Viet Minh troops and porters marched 20 miles a day, 30 if they were moving at night, free of the need to hide from French planes. 
Porters pushed their bikes, which started the battle at 200 pounds, but soon grew to 400 or even 600 pounds. Jap reports that one coolie from Futo managed to put and push 776 pounds on his bike. Soldiers carried their own weapons, water, shovel, mosquito net, a week's worth of rice, and a bit of salt in a bamboo tube. They broadened and improved the roads, work continuously complicated by the new holes that French aircraft managed to blow in them. They bridged rivers, putting their works just underwater to keep them hidden from the air. They roped together treetops, shrouding the entire route in a green twilight. They developed an early warning system for French planes, which were now dropping American-made fragmentation bombs, which blew tens of thousands of tiny metal splinters through trees and bodies. The French realized that the Viet Minh would scatter off the roads during a bombing and return later, so they developed another bomb, which would sink into the soil and only explode hours afterwards, when the Viet Minh were back to hiking and working. So the Viet Minh learned to dig up and defuse the time bombs, and they kept coming. The second step was to improve all available roads between the highlands and the Viet Minh base areas so that they could accommodate not just men and bicycles, but the movement of heavy artillery. Soviet Molotova trucks hauled the pieces the 500 miles from the Viet Minh's home base in the Viet Bac to the outskirts of the valley. Once those loads had reached the end of the road, though, which would intentionally not be improved all the way to Dien Bien Phu until much later to keep it hidden from the air, everything had to move on foot. Seven days and nights over the mountains, down valleys, and finally up again into their final positions in the heights all around Dien Bien Phu itself. Logoval writes that the majority of the Viet artillery was Japanese 75mm mountain guns, nearly designed for this kind of purpose. They weighed, quote, only, unquote, a half ton, and could be broken down into 11 parts, making them awful but not unbearable for the men who had to carry them. The much larger 105mm guns, though, which were meant to be towed by trucks, were a torment. Teams of men hauled them over narrow jungle tracks, churned immediately into ankle-deep dust or mud depending on the weather, using long cords and braking chocks to haul and hold them on the slopes that, as Logoval reports, reached as steep as 60 degrees. From Jap, quote, Contrary to the assumption of the enemy, who believed that our artillery could never be carried near his fortified entrenched camp, we managed to move hundreds of tons of ordnance pieces and munitions to the battlefield along steep slopes and across deep ravines, unquote. The third step was to entrench that artillery. You remember how the French figured either the Vietnamese could keep their guns safe and out of range or exposed on the near slopes of the hills? Jap split the difference and had his troops burrow through the surrounding hills. Rather than sitting in the relative jungled open, every gun peeked out from a heavily reinforced tunnel, with only its muzzle exposed and its crew totally protected. Once those guns started firing, the smoke of their charges and the jungle around them kept them entirely obscured from observation from the French positions. The fourth step was to do just the same thing for the Viet Minh command and control centers, burying them deep within the hills. Those centers were connected to the front areas and each other by nearly 100 kilometers of communications trenches. Again from Jap, quote, Our supplies were well prepared. The requirements of the campaign in food, ammunition, and medicines were very great. Responding to the appeal All for the Front, All for Victory, launched by the Party Central Committee and the government, our people devoted their manpower and wealth to the Dien Bien Phu Front. The inhabitants of the free zones, of the newly liberated regions in the northwest, as well as the regions in the rear of the enemy, served the front with enthusiasm. We organized supply lines hundreds of kilometers long, from Than Hoa, or Phu To, to the northwest, passing through dangerous sections pounded and destroyed day and night by an enemy who did his best to check our transport and movement." Unquote. 
The Viet Minh did most of their preparations at night or during the day under the cover of fog or tens of kilometers of latticework camouflage cover, so effective that in early 1951, the French imagined that the Viet Minh had actually given up the idea of attack entirely, and the French sent their airplanes elsewhere. From Jap, quote, While doing such a huge work, our troops had to keep themselves in good fettle for the coming battle. The responsible cadres of combat units, that is the commissars, did their best to improve the health condition of their men, keep their number in full, improve the supply, secure for them good food and good rest, create condition for them to eat their fill, to have hot food and hot drink, and to sleep soundly in the warm. Preventative hygiene was the object of great care by the Army Medical Services at all levels. On the other hand, we spared part of our time to give officers and men more training in tactics and technique, especially in the installation of positions, in the coordination of action between infantry and artillery, and in the attack of an entrenched camp." Unquote. Now, that first point about rest and warm food, this is actually pretty interesting. The Cubans, during the special period in times of peace, which is what they called the time in the 1990s when the Soviet money dropped out, while they still had 1980s-era medical equipment and an excellent corps of doctors, they didn't have the cash to do all the sorts of late-in-life, supply-heavy interventions that we do in the United States, or much further afield to buy the new equipment that allowed a lot of those interventions to happen. So the Cubans instead focused massively on what they could do, preventative medicine, an initiative which dovetailed with their countrywide return to homegrown healthy food, which they did by necessity. They'd been importing something like half of their food, and all of that disappeared overnight. They had to start planting community gardens. And what resulted was one of the healthiest populations on the planet, despite that the Cubans couldn't do excellent cancer, diabetes, or dialysis care. The Viet Minh here are pursuing the same avenue. They don't have a lot of prophylactic medicines, they don't have a lot of antibiotics, and they've only got one surgeon for the whole campaign, for 50,000 men. So what can they do? Well, focus on rotating units away from the line before they're exhausted, keeping them warm, dry, fed, and healthy. Fatigue and an absence of supply for the men at work, despite what Jap said about them having tons of supplies all the time, were primary concerns. The food situation was bad, too, because even if they had enough rice, the rice that made up most of their workers' diet was almost always undercooked, since kitchens had to be dark in the day and smokeless in the night. It's hard to get roaring fires going to cook the cauldron after cauldron of rice needed to feed tens of thousands of men on the march and at pick and shovel work without being spotted by French planes. Jep also made sure, and he talked about this in the sections we quoted, to focus on what he called the political work. The Viet Minh would need to dig deep. They'd need to build up vast stocks of supplies. They would need to create an entire hidden city around Dien Bien Phu. But Jap and Ho realized that they would also need to build up the morale of the troops and their determination to give one last great, deadly effort at the end of the eight long years that they had already devoted to the fighting. The political cadres went into overdrive, holding daily lessons on the importance of this battle, its chances for winning the war, and its likely effect on the international situation, doing everything that they could to reinforce the average trooper's willingness to risk one of the many, many sacrifices that would be needed before Dien Bien Phu lay in Vietnamese hands. Jap himself would run the battle, and he left his longtime headquarters in Thai Nguyen, bare kilometers from the Delatra line, getting to the vicinity of Dien Bien Phu so that he could direct the fighting in person. Good old Ho Chi Minh sent him off with full confidence, quote, and this is from Logoval, you are the general commanding the troops on the outer frontier. I give you complete authority to make all decisions. If victory is certain, then you are to attack. If victory is not certain, then you must resolutely refrain from attacking, unquote. 
The Chinese of the CMAG, the Chinese Military Advisory Group, were totally behind this effort. But at the same time, especially now that Korea was done, and the impending nuclear war that all involved had feared for some time was now much less likely, they and the Soviets were both becoming increasingly interested in a negotiated peace. So that, that nuclear war that they'd staved off in Korea wouldn't start in Vietnam. The Korea negotiations had also forced the world, and the U.S. in particular, to treat China as an equal bargaining partner, and they were happy to have another go-round with that kind of thing. Which is to say that the Chinese were on board with this battle, and that the quicker it could be won so as to achieve a position for eventual negotiations, the better. They're all on the same page at this point, but the Chinese are pushing for immediate battle, and Jap and Ho, as they have been since the disastrous Day River battles against Alatra back in 1951, they want to attack only, only, if they know they're going to win. Jap picked for his headquarters a cave near a waterfall, reminiscent of the hideouts that he and Ho had shared when the Viet Minh was just coming into existence, way back shows and shows ago. Jap, in his first meeting in that grotto, along with his Chinese CMAG advisors, decided on an all-out attack beginning at 5 p.m. on the 25th of January. American Billy Graham faces a battery of press cameras as, with his young wife Ruth, he comes to Britain on board the luxury liner SS United States. Hailed as the most potent evangelist in American history, Graham, a 35-year-old ex-baseball player, spoke to crowds numbering two million last year in the States, as well as writing a daily newspaper column and broadcasting regularly to Europe and America. Graham, who admits he is overawed by the prospect of his three-month crusade in Britain, answers questions put by a Pathé News reporter. Now, Mr. Graham, what is the purpose of coming to Britain? Well, the purpose of coming to Britain uh, is that uh, we were invited by approximately a thousand churches of the city of London to come and conduct an evangelistic mission. And we're going to conduct this mission very much as we would in the United States. And one final question. Do you think you can do anything about the Russians? <laughs> That's not in my area at all. I'm not in politics. I, I'm a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I haven't come to Britain with any idea of saving Britain or changing Britain. I've come here simply to present the message of Christ, and I'd like to make this statement. I think it's relevant to the point that I've not come to talk about politics or to uh, make any statements that might be construed as political, either conservative or socialist. Thank you, Mr. Graham. Yeah, thank you, sir. Later at Waterloo Station. Let's zoom out for a minute here, because inasmuch as we're focused on Dien Bien Phu in this episode, to the exclusion of the other less important stuff that Jap and Navarre had cooking in Vietnam at the time, the international situation is going to bear on the subject at hand. Remember a few things from last time before we get going. Eisenhower got elected in 52, he took power in 53, having run a campaign based on red-baiting lies about Atchison and Truman, and on a good-faith promise to make peace in Korea. The Korean War ended in July 1953, but because of all that anti-communist rhetoric the Republican Party slung at the Democrats, Eisenhower found himself trapped politically. He knew militarily that the French couldn't win their war in Vietnam, but he could not allow them, given what the public would think and the legitimate charges of hypocrisy that the Democrats would throw at him, to make peace the same way that the Americans had already done. Henri Navarre's appointment as French commander-in-chief, his plan for victory, and the torrent of American assistance that flowed into Vietnam over the summer and fall of 1953 were all the results of Eisenhower's push-for-victory policy with the French. Like we mentioned up top, though, the politicians that were running the show in Paris were humoring Ike with these victory plans. They knew, or they thought they knew, that the war was unwinnable, and they were fighting to hold on to American aid long enough to reach a coup no, a drawn game. 
Two events, one at the end of 1953 and another at the end of 1954, would shape the international situation going into the end of the war and would change the whole context of and the stakes involved in the Battle of Dien Bien Phu. The first of those, in the first week of December, just after the castor drop and just before de Castries had arrived in the valley, the leaders and foreign ministers of the United States, the United Kingdom, and France got together in Bermuda for a three-power conference. Not a whole lot got done at this meeting, but the discussion pointed up the fractures between the three key Western powers. The British and the French continued to be terrified by American nonchalance regarding the bomb. Eisenhower and Dulles both openly discussed using nuclear weaponry in Korea if the armistice fell through. And remember that we'd also just developed the hydrogen bomb, making all this even more terrifying for everybody else. The Americans and the British, meanwhile, kept up pressure on France to finally commit to the European defense community and the rest of their joint security arrangements in Europe. In case anybody's wondering, the EDC, the European Defense Community, was a post-NATO plan to create a pan-European army that never actually came together. But the French were uncomfortable with all of it, and actually left NATO for a bit once de Gaulle was back in power. In any case, at the time, the EDC looked like it might happen if the UK and the US could just get the French on board. And finally, the French, the British were also in favor but quietly, wanted to get a five-power talk going to end the war in Vietnam. That is a conference including the UK, France, the US, Russia, and China. Eisenhower, still carrying the big dead gorilla that were his own party's calumnies against the Democrats about the loss of China on his back, couldn't let that happen, even if it would have reflected the fact that China was fast becoming the world's other major power. This thing in Bermuda was supposed to have been an opportunity for Eisenhower, Churchill, the French Prime Minister Joseph Laniel, Secretary of State Dulles, French Foreign Minister Georges Bidot, and British Foreign Secretary Anthony Eden to get their ducks in a row for an upcoming four-power talk in Berlin. That is the US, UK, France, and the USSR. As it was, the three allies resolved nothing, and all three foreign ministers spent the interim time scheming against one another. Dulles to get France into the mindset of winning the war, Bido to find a way out of it, and increasingly as time went on, to sound the Americans out on rescuing Tian Bien Phu, and Anthony Eden quietly to make the five-power talk a reality, having become convinced in Bermuda that that was a good idea. In the run-up to the Berlin meeting to begin on the 25th of January, meetings of Eisenhower's National Security Council at the same time reaffirmed Vietnam's importance, nixed the idea of sending American ground troops there, and left open the question of massive American air intervention, especially one centered on the valley of Dien Bien Phu. Ike convened two top-secret working groups on the Indochina War, one run by Walter Beadle Smith, at this point still Undersecretary of State, before he became Alan Dulles' go-to coup man on Guatemala, something we heard about years ago now. And it recommended the immediate dispatch, approved of by Eisenhower, of 200 Air Force personnel to Vietnam to service the B-26s that we then began sending to the French. Eisenhower also approved the dispatch of CIA civilian pilots working for civil air transport to supplement the supply of French pilots, which was already following below the supply of available planes, something that we've already talked about. The CAT boys were trained for the C-119s, the famous flying boxcars, which would soon feature heavily in the skies above Dien Bien Phu. From Logoval, quote, end quote, Don't think I like to send them there, unquote, Eisenhower said in front of Press Secretary James Haggerty with reference to the technicians. Quote, but we can't get anywhere in Asia by just sitting here in Washington doing nothing. My God, we must not lose Asia. We've got to look this thing in the face, unquote and unquote. 
British Foreign Secretary Anthony Eden, noticing this particular prejudice in Washington towards Eastern policy, determined that Americans, quote, found it difficult to pursue a realistic policy towards China, unquote. So when Lloyd, another foreign office minister, seconded that opinion, quote, there is now in the United States an emotional feeling about communist China and to a lesser extent Russia, which borders on hysteria, unquote. The British could not understand, as the world does not understand today with Trump, how middle America could be so vehemently in support of MacArthur and his cronies. From Logoval, quote, For years, British analysts had marveled at the deep American aversion, across party lines, to negotiating with adversaries, at the ruling out of compromise and the demand for, quote, unconditional surrender, unquote, the simple American ideal, as one Briton put it, and at the unwillingness to recognize China or admit her into the United Nations. For years, they had noted the periodic anti-British broadsides in Congress and in the American press because of London's willingness to engage with Beijing and Moscow. Appeasers, the British were called, guilty of disloyalty, of cowardice, of cozying up to robbers and murderers. In late 1953, the frustrations seemed to build. In large part, the British speculated, because of American irritation at the failure to achieve outright victory in Korea. London policymakers reminded one another that at the end of the day, as one put it, quote, we and the Americans are basically on the same side, unquote, and, quote, anyhow, lecturing a patient in a state of hysteria will never do the slightest good, unquote. French public opinion, meanwhile, was losing faith in the war effort seemingly on a daily basis. A poll carried out during the Berlin meeting found that only 7% of respondents favored fighting to keep Indochina. French Foreign Minister Bideau didn't doubt that there would be uproar should the government refuse to follow every possible lead for an armistice, including an international conference with China, unquote. The British Foreign Secretary Anthony Eden at this conference, the conference in Berlin, the one that started in late January, wanted to set up another, including Red China, a position to which he knew the Americans would be vehemently opposed. The French were more or less on board, given the above, and knowing better than Washington that whether or not Dien Bien Phu or Navarre's other plan to sweep Annam clean of the Viet Minh, Operation Atlant, succeeded in their objectives, they were steps not towards victory, but towards the hoped-for honorable peace. At the Berlin conference, however, Eden managed to win over both Dulles and Russian Foreign Minister Molotov, who wanted to admit China with no preconditions and for discussions of all possible issues, and arranged for a five-power conference at Geneva, which would discuss both Indochina and Korea, but nothing else, to be held later in that year. So Geneva, which was set up to begin on the 26th of April, would play host to the Soviets, the Americans, the British, the French, and the Red Chinese, doing away with the American-maintained fiction that Chiang Kai-shek was any kind of power. Delegates would also arrive from Ho's Democratic Republic of Vietnam, Bao Dai's puppet government in the South, and the French-aligned governments, i.e. not the communist insurgencies, of the other associated states, Cambodia and Laos. To be discussed, primarily, supposedly at least, to give the Americans some cover, putting a more stable cap on the Korean War. Nobody wanted that flaring up again, neither the Westerners nor the Communists. And then there was also the real meat of the conference, which was ending the war in Vietnam. Now, Dulles came around at the talks in January for one big reason. He, by way of American aid, controlled French Foreign Minister Bideau's official position at that conference. Dulles could certainly have kept Bideau on a leash and kept the Chinese out of a future conference, that is, the five-power conference that would begin in April. But if it had become publicly known in France, as it definitely would have, that Prime Minister Laniel's government had had a chance for peace negotiations and had turned it down, that government would have collapsed, like the dozens of governments had collapsed before it. 
Since the socialists and the communists on the left were actively campaigning to end the war, and the de Gaullists on the right were also down on the war and on the European defense community, Laniel and Bidot's government could not be allowed to fall, in Dulles's mind. Ergo, Dulles had to let the conference go forward, because that was the only way to keep France in plans for the EDC and to keep fighting the war for the moment in Indochina. Now, he knew that this wouldn't look too good to the American public, this capitulation to China, this recognition of Red China as a world power, so Dulles headed back to Washington to try to explain that the weakness of the French government had forced his hand. He told the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, moreover, that the U.S., and this is from Logoval, quote, will not go into that conference with any obligation to stay there and will not be bound by anybody's vote other than its own. And we will be in a position to exert a considerable degree of power because of the extent to which the French are dependent, certainly to carry on the struggle upon our military aid, unquote. Dulles likewise went on TV to assure the public that the agreement in Berlin indicated no change in U.S.-China policy, even though it obviously was a change in U.S.-China policy. That is, recognizing Mao and the Red Chinese versus Chiang Kai-shek and his virtually non-existent regime on Taiwan. And all of that covering rhetoric, while it might have shored up support for the conference, it did little to untie the hands of the Eisenhower administration with regard to Vietnam, something that would contribute directly to the development of the new war there through the end of the 1950s and the beginning of the 1960s. The announcement of the Five Power Conference in Geneva likewise put pressure on Dien Bien Phu. Giap needed to take it to secure the DRVN's position at this upcoming conference, and de Castries had to hang on to it for the same reason. Jap went as far as to recall his Laotian offensive in mid-February, redirecting those troops to the siege forces around the valley. French Prime Minister Laniel, despite visiting the fortress and seeing the high spirits and eagerness for the coming fight among the garrison, was just hoping to squeak by until they could make it to the end of the Five Power Conference. Former Prime Minister René Plevin, now serving as basically the French Secretary of Defense, had very little hope for the garrison at Dien Bien Phu. And he determined that France's only goal at Geneva had to be to work towards an acceptable and immediate settlement to the war. Mr. Molotov, Russia's foreign minister, enters the building in Berlin where the four power conferences are taking place. With motor and motorcycle escort comes America's John Foster Dulles. Mr. Anthony Eden, Britain's Foreign Secretary, faces a battery of cameras as he arrives for the meeting, the first with Russia since 1949. Now, Monsieur Bido, the French Foreign Minister. Within the building, formerly used by the Nazis as a high court, the delegates meet. In the early stages of the conference, we now know, the Western powers refused Russia's demand that Red China should join in. This difference of opinion has become a serious barrier to friendly discussions between East and West. Getting back to Indochina, let's take another look at that relationship between French Commander-in-Chief Henri Navarre and his northern commander in Hanoi, René Cogni, since it was about to factor into proceedings at Dien Bien Phu. From Logoval, quote, Whereas Navarre was short and trim, taciturn and socially awkward, and ill at ease around journalists, Cogni was a giant of a man at six foot four and 210 pounds, an extrovert who had a flair for public relations and was a born leader of men. Now 49, he had doctoral degrees in law and political science and had survived the tortures of the Buchenwald concentration camp, merging at the liberation severely malnourished. He was down to 120 pounds and with a limp. He walked with a cane for the rest of his life. 
Under Delatre, he had commanded a division in Tonkin, earning raves from his men for wading through waist-deep paddies with them and fording streams to see what was happening on the other side. He had remained in Indochina after the great man's death, far more thin-skinned than Navarre, easily wounded by even the slightest criticism. He also had a well-earned reputation for arguing orders, even in front of privates. For all that, Navarre had nevertheless appointed him in May 1953 to command the key northern region, unquote. Cogni grew increasingly incensed with Navarre when his commander refused to allow him to hoard resources for Dien Bien Phu or use them for the defense of the disintegrating Red River Delta. More than that, Navarre pirated resources for Operation Atlant, which was meant to clear the coastline between Da Nang and Na Trang, that is, hundreds of miles making up the southern half of Annam's coast, hopefully catching some 30,000 Viet Minh regulars in the process. Navarre ended up dedicating nearly 50,000 Frenchmen to the job over the winter and the spring of 1954, along with huge amounts of air power, all of which achieved, as usual, exactly nothing, as the Viet Minh melted into the forest and hills of south-central Anna. The operation's major effect, besides robbing resources that Dien Bien Phu desperately needed to stay alive, was recorded in Bernard Fall's book Street Without Joy taking place in the Central Highlands, where a crack mobile group just imported from the fighting in Korea tried to hem in troops escaping from the coast. All of that is detailed in the chapter called Death of a Mobile Group, and that about says it all. All of this drew away things that were needed and that could have been thrown into the defense of Dien Bien Phu, men and planes and munitions and resources, and which in any case went to waste. Without being a military historian myself, I can only say for certain that it left Cognate less than happy with Navarre. Now, towards the end of December, I realize we're bopping back and forth in time here, but I'm trying to, to group things as much chronologically as I can, but also stick to a couple of themes so this isn't just, a, just me reading off a, you know, an Excel timeline. Anyway, towards the end of December, Navarre assessed the situation in the country. Now remember, his plan for winning the war, including the Operation Atlant we just mentioned, was to wipe the center and south clean of Jap soldiers and guerrillas. And once that was done, hopefully by the summer of 1954, to move his forces north and to burn the Viet Minh out of their headquarters in the Viet Bac. Navarre, if you remember back two hours ago to the beginning of this episode, had launched Operation Mouette. I don't know how you say that. Seagull back in October, which was meant to clear the Viet Minh south of the Red River Delta in Anam, and which had achieved nothing of consequence. That shouldn't have been surprising, given that the tactics, airborne drops combined with big pincer movements from the mobile groups, were exactly the same as the French had used in every other year of the war, and they hadn't won it so far. By the end of the year, with French intelligence telling him that de Castries was outnumbered at least 3-1 to one in Dien Bien Phu, and that Vietnamese artillery was probably on the move to the valley, with the valley reporting a tighter encirclement every day, and with the engineering commander Major Sudrat saying that it would take half a year or more to get enough supplies in to fortify the position, Navarre was already beginning to think that the garrison would be unable to hold against what was coming. In that light, he ordered General René Cogni on 29 December to plan Operation Xenophon, a breakout from Dien Bien Phu named after a Greek mercenary and student of Socrates who joined the 10,000, a band of Greeks hired by Cyrus the Younger, the runner-up for the emperorship of Persia to take out his brother, the actual emperor, Artaxerxes. Cyrus died halfway through that campaign, stranding the 10,000, leaderless, deep in the middle of Persia. Xenophon was one of three men that the 10,000 elected to guide them over hundreds of miles of hostile territory back to safety. That is, it was the name of a long-shot kind of plan. 
The drafts of these breakout operations would continue to evolve, but they were always kept secret from the men at the fortress, so as not to show a loss of faith with the attendant damage that they imagined that would create in the men's morale, or so the reasoning went. On the 1st of January, Navarre cabled back to France to tell his metropolitan masters that, quote, faced with the arrival of new possibilities, which very serious intelligence has been announcing for two weeks, I can no longer, if these materials truly exist in such numbers, and above all, if the adversary succeeds in putting them to use, he's talking about the artillery and all the digging and stuff that the Viet Minh are doing, guarantee success with any certainty, unquote. Which makes you wonder, if Navarre already doubted on the 1st of January that there was any way to win in Dien Bien Phu, why not affect Operation Xenophon immediately? Navarre here made two mistakes. One may be understandable, the other not so much. Now, I know this all sounds like I'm getting into the weeds, and uh, I am. I very much am. But there is a certain morality that I think we're going to end up having to play with. And it's something that I talked about in the show where I talked about T.R. Fahrenbach's book on the Korean War, which is called American Legions. His book is called This Kind of War. The show is called American Legions. But there's a morality sort of use ad bellum, which is the morality of the war that you're fighting, which in the French case is uh, non-existence. It's an immoral colonial war. And then there's use in bellum, which is just war theory of how you fight a war once it's begun. And what Fehrenbach talked a lot about is countries' duty to their own troops, to put them in a situation in which there's a possibility for victory and not just a hopeless struggle, and to treat them in good faith once you're there. And the way that's going to come into play is if the French high command knew that Dien Bien Phu was hopeless, the question of why they kept it going becomes a pertinent question, especially for the troops who were involved. Anyway, so the first of Navarre's two mistakes was that instead of taking the ominous developments at Dien Bien Phu as a sign that his plan to avoid a major engagement while focusing on the south of the country was already in the toilet and refocusing on the Highland Valley, that is, abandoning his other operations and redirecting resources to Dien Bien Phu, Navarre went ahead with his plans for Operation Atlant, which we already heard up above did uh, nothing. Navarre's second mistake was to continually undervalue Dien Bien Phu, both as an opportunity to put Jap's best troops out of commission and as a potential point of loss in the war. Navarre would repeat over and over and over again in his dispatches that while the fortress only occupied 5% of his forces, it occupied fully 50% of Japs. That's true, sure. But they were also maybe Navarre's best troops, and the outsized attention that would soon be focused on the valley gave its defense an importance totally out of proportion to the numbers of men involved. Navarre failed to realize that the morale issue and who was going to win Dien Bien Phu was going to be key at the conference in Geneva in April. And he likewise failed to reckon with how many of Jap's effectives he could destroy by keeping Dien Bien Phu supplied with men and munitions. Navarre never seemed to grasp in any way the importance of the valley of Dien Bien Phu. So instead of canceling Atlant, Operation Atlant, which tries to clear the coast of Anam at this point, Navarre goes with it full bore, virtually ensuring that Dien Bien Phu would never have the forces or support it might need if Jap really went for the attack, which French intelligence was already sure that he would. From fall, quote, to Cogni, the battalions that were going to be offered up for sacrifice at Dien Bien Phu were not impersonal pawns upon a chessboard, but flesh and blood units of his own command. In fact, they were the best troops available in all of Indochina. The realization that they were going to be used as bait for the enemy's main battle force seemed to Cogni not only a military mistake of first magnitude, but also rank betrayal. This is Times Square, New York, prior to the start of a civil defense drill, highlighting Operation Alert. 
drilled as part of the survival phase of the fourth such test held in this country. Less than two minutes after the takeover signal, the streets were cleared. Times Square is deserted. Mayor Wagner praised the work of civil defense officials and the cooperation of the public. Other theoretical bombs were dropped on cities from coast to coast. In Chicago, factory workers quit their machines to seek shelter until the all-clear sounds. Tens of millions across the nation take part in the vast nuclear attack exercise. A helicopter lands on the White House lawn, here to ferry the president to a secret mountaintop relocation center. The flight precedes a mock attack on the Capitol. President Eisenhower's flight makes history. He is the first president ever to fly in a helicopter. By this trip, he begins a regular service which in the future will be used between the White House and Washington Airport and also the president's farm at Gettysburg. Operation Alert sends the As the year moved into mid-January, tension in the valley increased. For all that every visiting general and dignitary, and there were dozens from France, from the U.S., from the U.K., from everywhere, praised the position and said it was totally unconquerable, the signs that the Viet Minh were around the valley in great numbers were becoming more and more obvious, with every offensive stab now mauled at some point on its mission. In the middle of the month, the French took a Viet Minh prisoner, who confirmed what had been in the air for a while at that point. Jap's attack, apparently, was imminent, set for the 25th of January. When the day rolled around, however, nothing happened. French radio protocol, which they never improved, was terrible, and the Viet Minh could listen in on practically every communication in the valley. Jap had gotten word that the French knew what was up almost as soon as the French knew it, and he pushed the attack back. He, Ho, and the Chinese CMAG advisors had agreed on the knockout blow when the French had barely arrived in the valley. Surveying the situation later in January, when the French had reinforced their numbers and their positions, Jap determined that his troops weren't ready and that their under-experienced artillery commanders weren't well-trained enough to coordinate an attack of that size yet. On the night of the 24th, the day before he was supposed to attack, Jap got so anxious about things that he went to bed with a headache, a cold herbal compress tied to his forehead. The next morning, Jap summoned his chief Chinese advisor and a man with no small amount of power, who Jap definitely didn't want to disappoint. The advisor was surprised by the bundle of weeds tied to Jap's head. From Logoval, quote, unquote, the battle is about to begin, unquote, the Chinese advisor remarked. How did Jap think it would likely unfold? Quote, that's the issue I'd like to discuss, unquote, came the reply. Quote, from observing the situation, I believe the enemy has moved from a temporary to a solid defense. For that reason, I think we must not follow our agreed plan. If we fight, we shall lose, unquote. Quote, how should we solve this, unquote, the Chinese advisor responded. Quote, my thought is immediately this afternoon to order a delay in the offensive, withdraw our soldiers to their training positions, and prepare again under the directive, steady attack, steady advance, unquote. The Chinese advisor, depending on which source one consults, either supported the delay or grumbled that Jap lacked, quote, Bolshevik spirit. Perhaps he did both, unquote. And so training and preparation would go on, and the attack would wait until March. Jap wrote that the most important consideration for them was that they had to strike surely and advance cautiously, the principle that they had followed ever since the Day River Battles in 1951 on the Delatra Line. 
The French, when Jap's January 25th attack never came, kept doing what they'd been doing the whole time. Not really fortifying their positions in as much as they fortified them enough to get Jap not to attack that first time, and attempting so-called reconnaissance in force, otherwise known as offensive stabs. Fall broke these French activities down into two stages, one more or less before mid-January and one more or less afterwards. The first was an effort to do what Dien Bien Phu had been intended to do, disrupt Viet Minh communications and lines of supply in the northwestern Vietnamese highlands. As soon as the cordon had formed around the valley, the battle for the first stage was lost. Probably the last expedition of this first kind was on January 8th, when one of the elite parachute battalions of the fortress found itself mauled on a short jaunt to Ban Na Loi, a village just outside of the valley. As Fall writes, after that, the second battle got underway. Quote, its design was to dislodge the enemy from his dangerous northern and northeastern lookout posts, from which the whole valley and this so essential airfield could be constantly watched. The French were now in the process of losing this battle. Unquote. Says Jap, agreeing with Fall, quote, Many a time the enemy mobile force at Dien Bien Phu, propped up by artillery and tanks, made reconnaissance incursions into the surroundings of the valley. But they were repulsed by small units of our army, which, taking advantage of the ground and solid positions, were able to protect our preparatory work and to keep it in secret. Though fighting separately against an enemy many times more powerful, these units fulfilled their task very heroically." Unquote. De Castries, living up to his aggressive cavalry reputation, kept up the attacks on the heights around the valley all through the next two months. On the 31st of January, the whole 2nd Airborne Group, the Gap 2, led by Colonel Lang Lei, along with a battalion of legionnaires, made for a hill just over a mile from Gabrielle. They stumbled on dozens of reinforced and camouflaged Viet Minh bunkers and what seemed like miles of trench works before retreating. As soon as February began, Viet Minh artillery started falling, in dribs and drabs, never in force, on each of the strong points, on the main center of resistance, and on the airstrip. Desultory puffs of flak appeared alongside French planes as they came in on supply runs. De Castries decided to focus pretty much exclusively at that point on hunting down Viet Minh guns moving into the hills around the valley. On the 6th of February, a group of Moroccans got chewed up trying to clear the hills around Gabrielle. On the 9th, an infantry attack in force on a village 5 kilometers from the main base got ambushed by a group of Viet Minh disguised in French parachute uniforms, and the French force only made it back with heavy losses and much support. On the 11th, a battalion of Algerians, reinforced by foreign legionnaires, tried to clear the heights around Beatrice, fell into an ambush, and lost dozens of men, their weapons, and their all-important American radios. A reinforced airborne group tried to get around Beatrice on the 13th, Thanks to a massive aerial bombardment, they managed to finally take the four tallest hills around the position from their Viet Minh occupiers. The French, of course, didn't have the men to keep those heights, so on the 15th of February, de Castries called his soldiers in, and the Viet Minh strolled right back onto their hilltops. As Fall wrote, since the attack itself had taken every spare man and tank in the entire garrison to effect, quote, the securing of supply and communication lines between the newly taken ground and the rest of the valley would have been too costly to contemplate, unquote. And since taking and holding those kinds of positions was the only way that Dien Bien Phu could have defended itself, what Fall really meant is that defending the valley was the thing that was too costly to contemplate. By the 17th of February, before the battle both sides were awaiting had even begun, de Castries had lost 10% of his combatants. 
a total of 32 officers, 96 non-coms, and 836 enlisted men, all of whose deaths had not disrupted Jap's operations in the slightest, and who would be sorely missed once the Viet Minh commander finally decided to move in. None of that, meanwhile, counted the 2,000 Thai irregulars lost in the retreat from Lai Chau in December. René Cogni called de Castries around that same time and told him to limit future operations to, quote, light reconnaissances carried out by, quote, commandos, spooked by the high loss rates among the best units in the valley. In his book, Fall calls that communication an admission of defeat for the French, and he says that, quote, with the loss of the battle for control of the heights around Dien Bien Phu, the last reason for the existence of Dien Bien Phu had evaporated. The slash of the 308th Viet Minh division to within 20 kilometers of the royal capital at Luang Prabang in Laos, and the simultaneous stab into central and southern Laos by the 325th, amply demonstrated that Dien Bien Phu had lost its last shred of usefulness, unquote. Back in Hanoi, Cogni's deputy chief of staff had recognized the regal danger of the situation, and he'd written up this note for his commander, quote, It is too late to throw the machine into reverse gear. To break out, we would need four battalions to act as rear guard and four battalions as flank guards, and they would be by and large offered up for sacrifice. Since the three Thai battalions are unusable for such a mission, we would have to sacrifice the bulk of the force to save four battalions, three of whom would be Thai. That battle will have to be fought on the scale of the whole Indochinese peninsula, or it will become a hopeless retreat, unquote. De Castries, sticking to his aggression and what looks to me like just disobeying orders, sent a battalion each of Thai irregulars and Algerian rifles to, to clear a hill less than a thousand yards from Gabriel on the 4th of March. That force fell into another ambush and withdrew with heavy losses. The next day, the 1st Foreign Legion Parachute Battalion, probably the most elite unit in the valley at the time, tried to attack the same hill and likewise had to fall back, dragging its dead and wounded along with it. On the 6th of March, Cogni called de Castries again to tell him in no uncertain terms to cut it out already. Now French tanks in action. Well, this is Indochina, where the seven-year struggle against the Viet Minh still goes on. These pictures give a glimpse of the recent battle near Dien Bien Phu, with French Union forces counterattacking at vital points in an effort to halt the enemy offensive. Meanwhile, enemy bases were subjected to constant shelling by heavy artillery. French commander-in-chief in Indochina, General Navarre, has since spoken with confidence of the present situation. His decoration as Grand Officer of the Legion of Honor was presented by Monsieur Plevin, Minister of Defense, during a recent visit to Saigon. On the eve of battle, which is where we are now, there were over 10,000 men in the French camp, belonging to units of greatly differing quality. On the Viet Minh side at this point, everyone is the best of the best, the cream of Jap's army, long in the making. For the French, their hardest men were the paratroops and the foreign legionnaires, their weakest the Thai tribesmen, who at this point were fighting a kind of war they were never trained for in a place they had never known hundreds of miles from home, all of which made them particularly prone to walk off in the night. Squarely in the middle of the two were the regular French infantry, meaning not the paratroops, including colonials from Algeria and the rest of North Africa. And the divide between good and bad was very much not a divide between French and not French. 
Major Brechignac's battalion of parachute light infantry was over 50% Vietnamese. Bichard's 6th BPC was about a third Vietnamese. Major Liesenfeld's 2nd Foreign Legion parachutists was nearly half Vietnamese. The 5th Vietnamese parachutists, eventually under Captain Botella, was, well, nearly entirely Vietnamese. All of these were among the best the French had on offer in the valley. And as Fall writes, quote, The fact that such mixed French-Vietnamese units on the whole fought far better than purely Vietnamese units, and also purely European units, who did not have the benefit of the knowledge of local terrain and language of their Vietnamese comrades, is an important lesson of the French-Indochina War that apparently was forgotten in South Vietnam ten years later, unquote. In a paragraph in which he throws shade on the United States, which he does constantly in all of his books, which is uh, part of what makes them great. Now, with all that said, I think it's time to get one final order of battle here. Who are the French and where are they located? But I I thought also it might be time to ask and answer, what is a strong point exactly and why have the French built them? So a strong point is a fixed defensive position, ideally according to the manuals, one built in such a way as to reinforce some natural feature of the land, i.e. on a hill or behind a ridge, etc. In the case of Dien Bien Phu, each strong point was different in its particulars, but they were in general collections of foxholes and bunkers grouped, in some cases, around some natural terrain feature, with their command and control dugouts in the middle. Some of these points, like Anne-Marie, Gabrielle, and Beatrice, were basically one continuous position. Others, like the Hugettes, Dominique, and Elian, contained as many as six small positions all grouped under the same name. Elian 1, Elian 2, Elian 3, and so on. So why build these strong points, these disparate and in some cases pretty isolated positions, Beatrice, Gabrielle, Anne-Marie, Hugette, Dominique, Elian, Isabel, along with ones we haven't mentioned, like Claudine, all of which were reportedly named for de Castries various mistresses? Why not, for example, just have one position with a continuous line of men and trenches running in a big circle around it? Well, the simple answer there was men. The French just didn't have enough of them to form a real perimeter. They had to defend a pretty sizable center of resistance, with less than a third of what they'd need to surround it, so they had to pick out any defensible bit of terrain and fortify that, rather than trying to encircle the whole thing. Fall writes that despite the significant supply difficulties, engineering commander Major Sudrat had at least managed to get enough barbed wire to, quote, more or less, unquote, surround the strong points with entanglements. The outlying positions, Anne-Marie on your pinky, Gabrielle at your middle finger nail, and Beatrice at the last knuckle of your index, got minefields. Strong points with steep hills, that's Anne-Marie and both Dominique and Elian on the right side of your fist, also got barrels of so-called nagel, a napalm mix which they could blow out onto any climbing Viet Minh. They likewise had enough barbed wire to close off each strong point to roads and paths, meaning that at the very least any Viet Minh creeping up in the night would have to clear the entanglements. All of which is really a miracle, considering how much weight they'd given Sudrat on those planes. But Bernard Fall also points out that, quote, While it is convenient for purposes of illustration to give the strong points at Dien Bien Phu the amoeba-shaped contours with which they are usually depicted, they were quite different. There was neither a connecting trench system, nor a common belt of barbed wire, nor even minefields, which connected all of the positions of a strong point, unquote. Now, that doesn't sound quite like it makes sense. We just said that these points were surrounded by barbed wire, right? What he means is that while Anne-Marie was all within one set of wire up on its crescent-shaped hill, and so were Gabrielle and Beatrice on their own little hills, Dominique's four positions were spread out. 
D1 had its own wire, D2 had its own wire, but there was nothing connecting D1 to D2 and so on, no matter how neatly all four Dominiques are usually circled together on the maps. And despite a contest held towards the end of January to see which unit could best harden its position, a competition that Gabrielle won, its Algerian celebrated by roasting a goat and inviting to Castries, and Dominique lost, really no strong point had come anywhere near to fulfilling the mandate to fortify for 105mm shells, and all of them would have reason to regret that lack of preparation before long. Now, at this point, as far as the French could see, the two most important positions in the entire camp were Beatrice and Gabrielle. The French needed an open airstrip to stay alive, and given that the airstrip was just north of the main center of resistance, along your middle finger, remember, those two positions were what kept the communist artillery they now knew was finding its way onto the heights away from that airfield. Given their utmost importance, de Castri stuck some of his best troops on them, a battalion from the famous 13th Foreign Legion Half Brigade on Beatrice, and a battalion of his best Algerian rifles out on Gabrielle, each with some light artillery of their own. And Marie, which from the maps looks to me as though it ought to be really just as important as the other two to shielding the airfield, got a battalion of the not-that-reliable Thai Irregulars. Now, the most remarkable unit on Jap's side lining up for proceedings was the 351st Heavy Division. You don't need to remember that number, just remember Heavy Division. A model which had been adapted from the Russians, first by the Chinese and now by the Viets, who those Chinese had trained. All of Jap's troops by this point, like I mentioned, were hard, and unlike the French, there were no standout unreliables on the Viet Minh side. But what made the 351st, the Heavy Division, special was that it was equipped with just ludicrous numbers of artillery pieces, all of which it was trained to concentrate on a single spot. With the 351st making a major contribution, Fall reports that the Viet Minh eventually put together more than 200 guns above 57mm between howitzers, mortars, recoilless rifles, and flak, while the French never got above 60, and once the battle started, dropped pretty immediately to 40. What's more, despite every glib Western estimate, at the end of February, French intelligence had cracked Jap's logistical code and found that the Viet Minh had managed to move hundreds of thousands of artillery shells into their positions around the valley. Not as many as the defenders had themselves, sure, but more than enough to pulp their position from on high. Not only that, but by the end of February, with Jap having had more than another month to prepare after calling off the January 25th attack, the Viet Minh vastly outnumbered the French, even more so than back in December. The French by that time had even more men in the valley too, some 13,200, which was good, but fully half of those were support staff, meaning that only about 6,600 could be used on the line, and they were of, quote, a very unequal quality at that, unquote, says Fall. The Viet Minh, by contrast, now had some 49,000 combatants around Dien Bien Phu, 31,500 logistical personnel, and 23,000 more strung out along the 500 miles reaching back to the Viet Bac. Most of the French intelligence, though, did not filter down to the men on the line, and morale was surprisingly high within the fortress. So high, says Bernard Fall, even among France's colonial troops, that one Sergeant Major Ben Salam, who Fall mentions he met nine years later as a major fighting against the French in the Algerian National People's Army, escaped from a hospital in Hanoi, where he'd been sent after being injured at Dien Bien Phu in January, snuck onto a plane, and made it back to his unit on Gabrielle by March 12th. That confidence and esprit de corps, for all that we know they were misplaced, weren't false. The Viet Minh had been desultorily shelling parts of the French position since early January, sure, 
but that they'd failed to do damage was taken as a sign that they weren't up to the task, rather than that the Viet Minh were carefully and deliberately dialing in the range of every single important point on the map. One-armed artillery commander Colonel P. Roth continued to decline to dig in his guns in casements or deep holes, just stacking up a few sandbags so as to leave the guns more able to reposition. He took his inability to locate the enemy artillery for counter-battery fire as a symptom of how few shells they were lobbing, rather than of excellent, even perfect concealment on the part of the Viet Minh. Lieutenant Colonel Jules Gaucher, who was head of the whole central sector of the camp, which in French plans included Beatrice, even though it was clearly far from the center, I don't know why, was also the commander of the 13th Foreign Legion Half Brigade, whose one battalion was on Beatrice. He wrote his wife on the 22nd of February, quote, For now the Viets leave us almost in peace. This is a decisive period. One has to ask oneself if the Viets are really going to attack us. We have created such a defensive system that it would be a big mouthful to swallow, and that gives pause to the gentlemen opposite, who have already countermanded the order to attack on January 25th. But I still believe that for the sake of prestige they'll have to come, though we are already causing them heavy losses with our artillery and aircraft, unquote which is really overstating the matter. Closer to the start of proceedings, with tension palpably building, the colonel wrote home again, quote, Things are still calm, but they tell us that a brawl is coming soon. Is it true? It's true they must wish to do something spectacular before Geneva, but I believe that if they do, they'll break their teeth, unquote. The flow of prestigious visitors, generals and politicians from all allied powers, even Graham Greene, the British novelist, continued to flow through the fortress, and nearly all of them pronounced it untakeable by the Viet Minh. A bare few expressed some worry about the shallowness of the trenches, the lack of reinforcement of the bunkers, but they brushed those worries off, and in any case there wasn't much left to be done. The Viet Minh, for their part, finished the second, quote, great preparatory work, unquote, that they'd undertaken after postponing the January attack, around the 10th of March, with General Jap pegging his offensive to the 13th of that month. Jap described a plan in three phases. First, wipe out the outlying strongpoints, that is, Gabrielle, Beatrice, and Anne-Marie. Second, grind towards the airfield through the Hugettes in the west and towards the center of resistance through Dominique and Elion in the east. He has different names for all these points, but I'm going to stick with the French ones. In the third phase, having reduced the garrison to a tiny pocket, Jap's troops would then overwhelm whatever was left. To get ready for that first phase, which would focus again on Beatrice, Gabrielle, and Anne-Marie, the three points that the French also thought were most essential, Jap had done both logistical and tactical preparation, that is, digging and training. Drawn from Logoval, quote, end quote, we had observed everything and made a minute study of the terrain several nights before the attack, using models too, unquote, a Viet Minh officer later told a French interviewer. Quote, every evening we came up and took the opportunity to cut barbed wire and remove mines. Our jumping off point was moved up to only 200 yards from the peaks of Beatrice, and to our surprise, your artillery didn't know where we were. Finally, some Thai deserters had given us a lot of information, unquote, and unquote. That second great preparatory work had hardened Jap's artillery positions even further, dug his hospitals and barracks even deeper, made his trench and tunnel system even longer. By the 10th of March, every outlying strongpoint could clearly hear the sound of picks and shovels, day and night. The relatively green Viet artillerymen and their Chinese advisors, as they slowly shelled the base, had by the beginning of the month drilled down on the exact coordinates, powder charges, elevations, and distances of every bunker, every dugout, every radio aerial, every single point of interest in Dien Bien Phu. 
To further hamper French attacks from above, too, Jap had ordered commando raids in the Red River Delta, with Viet Minh infiltrators in February crawling through drainage pipes to blow up five C-47 Dakotas and 100,000 liters of aircraft fuel with satchel charges. Another raid in March claimed another 10 Dakotas. A subsequent attack took four B-26 bombers and several Moraine spotter planes. The French, for the moment, were almost lucky that they had more planes than pilots, but once they'd brought all the civilians they could on board, including the CIA boys of civil air transport, those losses would begin to hurt their fleet capacity and badly. By the 11th of March, Beatrice found itself so tightly hemmed in by Viet Minh trench works that it took two tank platoons, that is six of the light M24s, and a battalion of foreign legionnaires just to make the water run to the strong point. So de Castries ordered his last big offensive stab on the 11th of March, telling Lieutenant Colonel Lang Lei, head of the Gap 2, the 2nd Airborne Group, to make a large-scale reconnaissance to cross the two miles from the center of resistance to Hill 555, which overlooked Beatrice. Maybe the best officer in the camp, leading the best men, couldn't get past the first Viet Minh trench line and fell back to base before the sun went down. The water run got no easier on the 12th. On the 13th of March, it took the six tanks, a battalion of Thai, and a carpet of napalm on either side of Road 41 to allow the water through. At 3 o'clock that afternoon, the last Dakota, the last C-47 of the day, came in carrying Andre Laban and Jean Martinoff, two reporters and old Dien Bien Phu hands, the former of whom had jumped in during Castor, and the latter of which had gone on a few of those offensive stabs. From Fall, quote, Laban had already been wounded twice in earlier operations and looked forward to the big battle, which obviously was only hours away. He was an old acquaintance of the 1st Battalion, 2nd Foreign Legion Regiment on Huget and took a ride down to the strong point to get a general view of the situation at ground level. At the little officer's mess there, there was talk only of the attack expected for that night. What do you think, fellows, said Laban. It's going to be a great show this time. You can say that again, said one of the lean Foreign Legion officers. The curtain raiser has already begun. Japs boys are already giving us their best cards. 81mm mortars, 120mm mortars, 105mm howitzers, the whole works. It's going to be like Nasan, only 10 times bigger. Or almost Verdun. This time they'll put all their big artillery here and will show us what they have learned about big war fighting. The friendly din of the mess was suddenly overshadowed by the heavy explosions of the 105s on the airfield. Laban decided that this was as good a time as ever to take a close look at what the enemy's firepower looked like. Both he and Martinov raced back to the airstrip, now barren of any human activity, with the enemy's shells methodically proceeding with the destruction of a cricket reconnaissance plane and a damaged C-47. Get down into the ditch, said Laban to Martinov. I'll shoot a sequence on the destruction of the Dakota. Then three shells fell almost simultaneously. Martinov died on the spot. Laban lost his right foot and was evacuated the same evening aboard one of the ambulance aircraft which had braved the enemy fire." Unquote. French intelligence had hinted that the long-awaited Viet Minh attack was imminent all through early March, and as the sun began to set on the 13th, the feeling that Jap was finally going to pull the trigger was widespread throughout the fortress. At 5 p.m., the Viet Minh commander showed his hand. Three new anti-aircraft batteries opened up around Gabrielle, in line with the airstrip, meaning that any plane would have to fly directly into their axis of fire to take off or land. Also at exactly five, Jap's artillery began to pour onto Beatrice. Sergeant Kubiak, a member of the Foreign Legion Half Brigade, who we'll hear from a few times, had just had a last drink with a friend before returning to his own dugout when the bombardment began. From Kubiak's account in fall, quote, 
We are all surprised and ask ourselves how the Viets have been able to find so many guns capable of producing an artillery fire of such power. Shells rain down on us without stopping, like a hailstorm on a fall evening. Bunker after bunker, trench after trench, collapsed, burying under them men and weapons." Unquote. After ten minutes, the curtain of artillery fire moved back, now blocking Beatrice from the main position, and six battalions of Viet Minh streamed out of their trenches just 200 yards from the strong point, itself occupied only by one now much reduced battalion. Fighting became hand-to-hand -hand immediately, the Viet Minh clearing trenches and dugouts at close range. At 6.15, the head of the particular battalion of the Half Brigade, Major Paul Pigot, called down French artillery inside the strong point at his very last planned line of resistance. Fifteen minutes later, a Viet Minh shell penetrated his dugout and killed him and his entire staff. Jap's artillery was falling everywhere, though, not just on Beatrice, part of his time-tested strategy of always appearing, at least, to attack in more than one place. Head of the Gap 2, Colonel Lang Lei and his men were following the battle by radio from the main position and waiting to move themselves if need be, when their bunker sustained a direct artillery hit and collapsed. They dug themselves out only to hear the keening wail of a second incoming shell, but when the noise went silent, they found that it had missed one of Lang Lei's staff officers by only an inch and buried itself in the wall behind them, a dud. Lieutenant Colonel Gaucher, head of the Central Subsector and the commander of the Legion Half Brigade to which the battalion on the embattled strong point belonged, had to figure out at this point who to put in charge of Beatrice now that its commander was dead. He called his staff into his dugout at the main position, something that they'd agreed to try to avoid in order to keep all from being hit at once, and just as he was about to begin the meeting, another Viet Minh shell found the air shaft and exploded in front of him, tearing his arms off and killing all but one member of his staff. An ambulance raced through artillery fire to get the colonel to surgery, but he died on the way. Just before eight, with the entire central subsector and the rapidly disappearing Beatrice leaderless, de Castries called the parachute commander Lang Lei and turned both over to him. By eight o'clock, there were three companies still responding from Beatrice. At 8.30, the 10th went silent. At nine, the 11th reported that the Viets are all over the place and ceased responding. At midnight, the 9th company, Sergeant Kubiak's outfit, had been holding out all alone on Beatrice for three hours. Its last radio message, 15 minutes into March 14th, asked for artillery fire directly on top of their last bunker, and as Sergeant Kubiak tells it, the first shell tore the radio operator himself in half. Kubiak and the rest of the 3rd Battalion, 13th Foreign Legion Half Brigade, crept their way off Beatrice shortly afterwards and made for the jungle, hoping to survive the night and make their way into French lines in the morning. They made up a total of two lieutenants and 192 enlisted men from an original garrison of 750. Gabrielle and Anne-Marie managed to hold on that first night, but all of Jap's apparatus had been directed towards Beatrice, and it would shortly turn their way. From fall, quote, At 225 hours of March 14th, the radio teletype at General Cogney's headquarters in Hanoi began to tap out a brief message from Dien Bien Phu. Without liaison with Beatrice since 015, by listening in on internal radio net, assume all strong point in communist hands, Colonel Gaucher dead. Thus ended the first day of the Battle of Dien Bien Phu. And that's the end of the first of two episodes on Dien Bien Phu. You've all seen how these things get away from me, and this battle's no exception. It's almost like a paradox from Archimedes. 
The farther into the series I get, the more time I spend talking about shorter periods of history. The first episode of this series knocked out a couple of thousand years in less than two hours. This time around, we've spent two and a half on less than six months. And next time, it'll be even longer on the period from March 14th to May 7th. I'm getting right up against my leave-by date here in Mexico, and doing the math, I think I will definitely finish with Geneva, set up Ngo Din Ziem in Saigon and Ho in Hanoi, and maybe even get to the election of John F. Kennedy with enough time to hint of things to come. The U.S. war in Vietnam, that, for the moment, is going to remain beyond the horizon. Your homework this time around is all the regular social media stuff, reviewing the show, rating it, etc., and, and, going to podcastawards.com and voting for SFD there. We are in the news and politics category, because they didn't have a history one. Head over, vote for us, it might be the last big way to put this stuff in front of some more people. Safe for Democracy is a big job, and everybody helping me out there is doing me serious favors, especially this month, EVV, who if you listen back to some previous shows, has been a serious supporter in the past, too. The outlines for all the episodes are up for anybody donating $10 to the show or more on Patreon, and if anybody gets anything out of them, that will make me very happy. One more time. Rate, review, share the show, podcastawards.com. And that's it for this time. In, I think, a week and a half, it's Bijard and Langley, the Battle of the Five Hills, Geneva, the Hugettes, and May 7th, the day that the French refused to wave the white flag over Dien Bien Phu. I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate, and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect. <laughs>